All right, so I love year-end lists, and I've been going through all the uh, year-end classical lists, and I, you know, I'm really enjoying what I'm seeing there. I was looking at the uh, Gramophone magazine, England's um, Gramophone magazine, or I should mm. say Great Britain's, and they always have this um, best of the year, and they go month by month, and they pick 10 recordings from that were released every month, or not released, not the month they were released, but the month they reviewed them. This year, they, they did that, but before they released that, before they released their list in that format, they had all, you know, they do 10 recordings a month and they put them all you know, on a file like that you had to scroll through. And there were 130 recordings oh, on the list that they, they weren't in any sort of order. You're supposed to like scroll down and I guess be delighted by the, um, <laughs> the one that pops up next. <laughs> and this just went on forever. And I got to tell you, we're, we're on Facebook and there are like all these sort of lists on Facebook too about like 40 things that, you know, whatever. And uh, 40s, that's a lot to scroll through. Yeah. And while I was scrolling through this gramophone list, I was thinking, you know, being in hell, it's not fire. It's not fire. It's scrolling. It's scrolling <laughs> forever. That's what hell is. It's just the scroll that never ends. <laughs> I just really hate scrolling. This is the worst thing ever. Digital I hell. I don't know. Digital hell. I got to tell you, they're, 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 I've mentioned this before. As convenient as computers make things, I think it's uh, making life a lot worse. Although it seems to be making it better for us. I can't really complain. Anyway. Well. There it is. Scrolling. That's what hell is. <laughs> <laughs> so you listen to the digital woes of your co-host Mike over there. That's me. It's all digital woes for me. And this is Russ <laughs> over on this side. And we're going to have our own end of the year list in our next episode uh, coming up a week from next now. week this is the last episode of new music of the year right yeah so stay tuned for those lists we've each been compiling our own list and how we do it we do kind of uh, the bizarro method as uh, any regular yeah, listeners will know mike i like this yeah mike picks the classical recordings each week and i pick the jazz selections but for the end of the year following in the tradition we set uh, for our first year, I'm going to pick 10 classical recordings and Mike is going to pick 10 jazz recordings. And then we'll both have a more extended list from our own category, but we won't know until right. the day of the podcast when we meet in the mountain lair, what the other's selections are. So we'll be surprising everyone. And then I'll put them all together in an easily scrollable list. So you can uh, reference <laughs> all the links for and a streaming. very long scrollable list too. Yeah for streaming and to the original episodes if you want to catch the full reviews because we're going to be kind of more just fondly remembering and giving right. a general overview of those recordings so yeah that's if you thought that christmas scrolling list was long wait till uh wait till you see this one it's gonna have a lot of recordings on it anyway this is as mike said our last episode of 2022 with uh new recordings of, of new about. music of 22 right. we're gonna still do one more episode next right. week but that won't be new music okay and this is episode 94 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. Before we get into things, I want to remind everyone that in the episode description, you'll find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music we're going to talk about tonight. Also, at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. You can get all the music in one place on Deezer. That's our favorite CD quality streaming platform. You can follow us there at username Adult Music Podcast. They also have the podcast on their podcast uh, tab too, so you can get the music and the podcast in one place if you so desire. 
And if you can't see the full description or the links aren't activated on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, you can always come over and check us out on our host site, podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's easy to follow and activate from there. If you enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us and tell a friend. Word of mouth gets us new listeners too. If you give us a ranking or write a review on whatever app you listen to us on, that'll help us get listed in the recommendations in the music categories, and that helps us grow our audience too. Follow us on Facebook as well to get extra info and more releases throughout the week. You see our handsome faces there and some other interesting conversations yeah. to pop up. You can leave a message there as well. Comment if you'd like. And if you want to contact us directly with any other comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Also, at the end of the description, you'll find links to some other podcasts we recommend. Tom Gowker's podcast, Something Came From Baltimore. It's a jazz, blues, and R&B interview podcast featuring interviews with well-known musicians. Famous Interviews in Neon Jazz. That's by Joe Domino. He's got interviews with artists, musicians, and writers. And also, same difference, two jazz fans, one jazz standard. We got Johnny Valenzuela and Tony Abra, who look at several versions of the same jazz standard each week. And they play little snippets from each version and discuss the history of the original and the different versions. And I'll put all of their little promos at the end of this episode. If you listen to the end, you can get a little bit of a preview of what those guys have going on. Yeah, I think the only way we uh, actually grow is by word of mouth at the moment because nothing else seems to be working yet. You got to figure something out. <laughs> the last time yeah. I looked in the music commentary recommendations, more than half of them were K-pop related <laughs> broadcasts. So. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, the decadence of the world. Let me tell you. People find us when they're searching for something else, uh, artists and whatnot, in a name cross-references, and then they say, oh, wonder what that's like. Right, and, uh, there's that too. Yeah, yeah, that's maybe a better way. Yeah, it's no, it's funny. We'll usually get, like if, uh, say, a contemporary composer, if I'll do that, then we'll suddenly get a lot of people from that country that that yeah. composer is from. I noticed <laughs> you know, that. They'll yeah. sort of, maybe his students or something <laughs> will right. listen to us. All right, so we ready to dive Let's into dive the- dive um, into the classical part of the, the program. The last six- yeah, the last six albums of the year. Mm. Okay, here we go. 2022. And we got a real winner uh, first. And in fact, I've been sitting on this one for a long time. This is Le Frère Francoeur. And by a violinist who is well known, if you listen to this podcast, because we love this guy, mm. Leotim Langlois Desfart on the violin. And another uh, musician, he's paired up this time with another musician we really like, um, Justin Taylor on the harpsichord. Yeah. Uh, we've done recordings like of them separate, and here they are together. Mm. I was like, oh, can't miss with this. And uh, I was right. This is on the Alpha label from France. And uh, what a recording this is. Now, the um, title is Le Frère Francoeur, which means the Francoeur Brothers. Can you name them, listener? Uh, I couldn't before I heard this album. And I still don't really remember. I have to look at my notes to remember their name, their names. They're not as famous as the the Bach family or anything like mm -hmm. that. But this is kind of a, a key point I want to make. Um, Western classical music has had its share of musical families. I mean, you think of the Bach family right away, and um, the Strauss family in Vienna, the the Waltz family. Right. But what 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 it must have been like growing up in that family with all those waltzes? Uh, boy, <laughs> I don't know. That would have maybe driven me crazy. Incidentally, just just for 
classical listeners who might not even know this, Richard Strauss, the uh, orchestral composer, was not related to the waltzing Vienna Strauss right. family. So right. they're, they're not related, which is odd. Incidentally, these musical families extend to the present day, but they're not composing families. They're mostly performing families. Uh, the Kwijken family in Belgium, the Chung family from Korea. We remember the violinist Kyung Wa Chung and the mm. conductor Myung Moon Chung, and there are others too in that family. The Capuçon family from France, Renaud and Gautier, the violinist and cellist. Uh, the Yervi family from Estonia. There was there was um, originally Nema Yervi, and then his um, his sons, actually his whole family, especially Pavo Yervi, is very famous. Mm. And I got to meet Christian Yervi once. And uh, there are others as well. And most recently, we've talked about the Kana Mason family from England. Well, there are a lot more of these families in musical history uh, that we're not really even aware of. They've been lost to the mist of time and the tyrannies of, quotation marks, the repertoire. <laughs> they just weren't in the repertoire, so yeah. just, we just didn't hear them. Anyway, one such family were the French family of violinist composers, the Francoeur family. It's F-R-A-N-C-O-E-U-R. Their musical activity spanned a period of more than 120 years, so they made an impact, but uh, mm. we just didn't really hear about it, from the Baroque era to the early Romantic period. And it uh, turns out that uh, it's our loss, because uh, this is some pretty great, uh, not, not only great works, but these are pretty great performances, especially from, uh, I don't want to single out. Langlois de Swart, but I really was drawn to his playing on this yeah. album. Anyway, let's just go through this track by track as we do. So this is Baroque era recordings. We have a violin and a harpsichord. The first work is um, Francois Francoeur and Francois Rabel of recording together. Now, there have been recordings of Francois Rabel's music before, um, mostly for the harpsichord. But in this case, um, this is um, a work called Le Trophée um, from 1745. And um, Francois Francoeur was initially known as the Younger, Fran you know, Francois the Younger, to, to distinguish him from his brother Louis Francoeur, or Francoeur the Younger. Mm. Uh, then, then he was called uh, the Uncle, because he was the uncle of his nephew, Louis Joseph, who became a violinist composer. He was the th son of Joseph Francoeur, a player of the bass violin at the Paris Opera. His name is inseparable from that of Francois Rabel. Their friendship began at the Paris Opera just before Louis XIV's death in 1715. So this work, uh, Le Trophée, has a, um, it's an opera, I guess, and we're hearing instrumental snippets from it. So this first track, uh, track one, Gavotte, pour le muse et le plaisir, gracieusement. So this is going to be a dance. They, the French really liked having dances in their operas. As a little divertissement, as we say. This starts with downward arpeggiated figures in the harpsichord that are slowly and hypnotically played. Justin Taylor really is asserting his um, you know, sense of rhythm and his quality here. I really liked this. The violin comes in and really pulls the melody out of the material that Taylor is playing. He's, he kind of takes this melody out of the chords. There's a melancholy quality to this, some gorgeous sound on the harpsichord. We hear the violin a bit more forward than the harpsichord, and that's um, a realistic sound. If you were to hear this in the concert hall, you'd be hearing mostly the violin. Now, the violin isn't a very loud instrument by itself, but the harpsichord, for those who've only heard it on recordings, is very, very quiet. And mm -hmm. uh, so what you're getting on this recording is really very realistic. 
Desfat's sweet tone is immediately appealing, as it always is. And I've always liked Taylor's highly articulated quality, which is in evidence here. Um, the piece is performed slowly with the violin line vibrato-less and rather melancholily stretched out. This is the thing about Baroque music. You're always going to hear a vibrato-less violin in period instruments, and we're getting that here. Now, that doesn't mean expressionless. There are other ways of getting expression out of a violin. And um, Desfart is really excellent at this, or Langlois Desfart, I should call him. Okay, the second track, uh, Deuxième Air, the second air. This has a different feel, and it's more on the uh, reminiscent side. We're reminiscing. Mm. Uh, there's a bit of melancholy in there. So far, this is a pretty melancholy album, tracks one and two. The violin's sweet tone is heard in its middle and higher register with the harpsichord rather in the background here, playing fairly busy arpeggiated figures. All right, this is one thing I'm a little bit sad about, although I have no complaints about the recording. Taylor is playing a lot of interesting material on the harpsichord. He's um, you know breaking up chords and playing these arpeggiated figures. And when the violin plays, they're hard to hear because the harpsichord is so much quieter than the violin, a natural occurrence. I just sort of wish I could have, I mean, you could put headphones on and hear it a little and you know, zero in on it. But um, I really enjoyed what he was playing and I really wanted to hear it a little more closely. But, you know, no gripes about the way this mm. sounds. It's a lovely touching melody, again, with slight crescendos on key notes of the melody, stretching them out for emotional effect. Very nice. This is one of the things that uh, Langlois de Soir does on, in these Baroque recordings. He'll sort of when he's coming to a cadence or to the end of a phrase, he'll like stretch out the last note like it's kind of taffy, like a little bit, and he'll get this kind of <laughs> almost pulling quality, like yeah. you're, he's like he's pulling it out of your heart. It's a really nice effect. I really enjoy hearing it, and we normally don't hear this much from um, violinists, say, playing romantic music. I mean, they'll do rubato, but that's a different effect than we're getting here. All right. Anyway, one, one quality that's going to come up on this recording a lot. Listen for it. Third track, Piram, Ethisbe, which um, readers of Shakespeare will uh, know as Pyramus and Thisbe, which is a um, play within a play in, I can't even remember which, um, I think it might be a Midsummer, I don't remember, Midsummer Night's Dream maybe, I don't remember mm-hmm. which Shakespeare play, this was the play within the play in, but um, I can look it up, or listeners could write to us <laughs> and let us know. Anyway, this is the Air pour le guerrier, the... Um, the air for the warriors, or an air being a song. Pyramides Bay was um, the Franco and Rebel's uh, first jointly composed opera back in 1726. Ah, yes, mm. I remember it well. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it was the start of a long collaboration. I'm not that old, please. Although certain people would say I am. Which they staged, uh, it was the start of a long collaboration in which they staged tragic operas, ballets, and many one act miniatures, both at court and in Paris. The operas continued in the tradition established at Versailles by Lully and Lalande. The style was theatrical, but never strained at modernity and exaggerated virtuosity or harmonic daring. It didn't have any of those three things. So it was fairly modest. They didn't really go for the, uh, hmm. the Italian. Uh, desire to just wow the audience with all of these things. They wanted taste. Now, to us, to our modern ears, all of this is going to sound, none of this is going to sound terribly, well, I guess it'll all sound conservative. I don't know, because it's old, but um, the harmonic daring isn't going to sound harmonic by today's standards. There's no harmonic daring in this piece, is what they're saying, though. Okay, this one has a bold opening. Um, The violin is full-toned, the harpsichord playing clearly articulated chords with a bit of a bounce in them, and there's a contrasting middle section that starts quietly but quickly livens up. 
The recording captures the quality of the space well, by the way, in all three of these tracks, and really in the whole album. Okay, the same duo, uh, Francois Francourt, Francois Rabel, also composed track four jointly from Les Augustales in 1744. The piece is called Le Théâtre Subscursi, On Entend Le Tonnerre. So this is really a stage direction. The theater darkens and one hears thunder. And that's, I guess, what's being evoked mm. in this music. Quick violin figuration in which um, Langlois de Swart digs into the strings for a textured sound more dimensional than a simple, beautiful tone gets. And the violin sounds really close in a good way. Uh, the harpsichord here plays quick chords and the piece stops suddenly. So it's just sort of this interlude probably between mm. scenes. Okay, and then we go right into the next scene. Tracks five through nine, a bit of a... Uh, surprise here. Uh, the composer is Jean-Jacques Baptiste Anet, and a composer who I've never heard of until now. He lived uh, 1676 to 1755, so he's a Baroque-era composer. So he outlived Bach by five years. Hmm. Anyway, this is um, his Sonata Number no. 11 in C minor from his uh, Premier Livre, um, etc., 1724, for, of Sonatas for Van Solo. Ané himself was a member of a musical family. Maybe we'll uh, get a recording of that family on a future release. We'll have to see. This is a five-movement work. The first move, they're all very short movements, like a minute or two minutes long. The first movement is Largo, very slow. And here we're in the French world of the elegant dance at court. Uh, the violin sounds quieter and possibly farther away than the previous track. The harpsichord quieter still, but perfectly audible. It's a gentle movement with a curved melodic contour. The second movement, Alamanda, which is a lively dancing movement here. Both instruments drawing out the rhythmic element of the material. There are short attacks on the melodic elements, and they throw the rhythm into relief. This Lenglois de Svart really has an appealing tone on his period violin. I think I've mentioned that every time we've talked about one of his recordings. Yeah, he's really, I really like him a lot. Third movement, vivace. I wrote, in, I wrote with a question mark, vivace? This yeah, starts very too. slowly. Doesn't sound yeah, well, like what vivace. Was this? <laughs> <laughs> vivace means lively, and I think they might mm. be taking it. We, we think of vivace as fast, right, but it actually right. means lively. And you can have lively without being fast, and I'm guessing that's what they're going yeah. for here. I would always just go fast for this anyway. With a climbing figure in the violin, busy accompaniment in the cello, the cello? The harpsichord. <laughs> I don't know why I wrote that. Okay. Some of it uh, in the harpsichord, rippling scale figures. I like the way the movement sounds as it's performed here, but the vivace marking seems to be ignored. We are instead given beautifully shaped winding phrases with a gently chiming accompaniment from the harpsichord. And I said here, I guess it could pass for lively, which doesn't necessarily have to be fast. It comes across as a slow movement though, which I thought was kind of odd. Anyway, the fourth movement is Allegro, and this starts, this is really charming. It has a chiming harpsichord figure with light pizzicati from the violin. Really interesting sound. Mm. It'll, it'll really grab your attention, if only for contrast, giving the impression of something uh, Christmassy to me, or a light sleet storm, or a, crystal, a storm of crystals, if you can imagine crystals mm. falling from the mm. sky. The sound is crystalline from the harpsichord. The violin starts bowing its material at the 48 second mark. It's a visual theatrical movement and very pretty. You should sample this track. It ends suddenly, unexpectedly, and inconclusively. We don't get a final tonic. 
The fifth movement is a gig, well, labeled it giga here in its Italian form, a very actively dancing movement with the rhythm and very high relief. Uh, this is marked allegro, by the way. It's vigorously performed and in good contrast with the previous movement. Very enjoyable Baroque work. I also like the little variations in the phrasing the two employ between the dancing sections of this movement. Listen, for example, from a minute and 22 seconds to a minute and 25 seconds, you know. If you just stop listening for three seconds, you'll miss it. But there are a lot of examples of this sort of thing in this piece. I really like these performances a lot. Track 10, I guess this is our um, thread that's going through the recording, holding it all together. Uh, Francois Francoeur and Francois Rabel, again, they, we get um, theater pieces by them in between the bigger pieces. This um, is from also from Les Augustales, and this is a musette. A musette, when we see that word, we should expect a droning bass. A musette is a... Um, pastoral French instrument, sort of like the bagpipes, only a more gentle version of it. And we get the droning bass in the harpsichord, which plays mostly bass patterns with some decoration. The violin plays a circling figure that repeats several times. If you've heard bagpipes, you kind of, this is the way they're played. You know, the musettes really played the same way. There's a contrasting circular figure at 40 seconds, and the piece is hypnotic and doesn't vary much from its opening pattern. Okay, finally, track 11 through 15, we get a solo work by Francois Francoeur. This is his uh, Sonata in G minor, opus 2, number 6, from his collection of sonatas for uh, solo violin and uh, basso continuo. Second book, 1730. Francois's two collection of um, sonatas for violin and continuo are said to be among the most beautiful of the period. And that's saying a lot, considering that you know Handel and Bach mm. were alive at this time. But, you know, they weren't in France. Anyway, they are t and you think of Marais and, you know, all those, the, the French as well. Um, they are tinged with Italianate traits and captivate with their melodic depth and sparkling virtuosity. And their double stopping provides a whole spectrum of polyphonic effects. They're governed by Francois' constant search for variety. Francois ultimately intended them to be part of the tradition of the Goutte Réunie, which is the uniting of half Italian and half French musical tastes or styles. So Goutte is hmm. taste, but kind of means style here. Practiced a generation earlier by Couperin, Rabel, Marais, and Campra. Those are some giants of uh, French Baroque music, and they're saying Francois Franck had um, some of the most beautiful works of the period. And uh, judging by this, um, yeah. I wouldn't count him out. This is really nice. First movement, Adagio. This is track 11, uh, labeled um, Adagio, and then also Lentement. I guess they kind of mean the same thing, though, I guess. Starts with an arpeggiated chord in the harpsichord. The violin comes in immediately with a slow melting line and some double stopping thrown in for harmony. At the 37-second mark, the harpsichord and violin both lighten their sound, and I really love Langlois de Svart's sensitivity as a new section starts at the one-minute mark. The longest pause before it adds to the effect. And again, he does this at 2 minutes and 27 seconds. The coda features thick double stop tone, notes sliding into new harmonies. So he's kind of he's kind of almost glissandoing into these new chords. It's very stylishly played. The second movement, Alemand, is a lighter, rather quick movement. Nice contrast with the previous heavy toned movement. The tune is appealing. The harpsichord is kept pretty busy with chiming arpeggiated figures as the violin articulates the melodic material. Third movement, Courant, which is a faster dance than the Alemand. It is quicker here and a bit more aggressive in the playing. Taylor accents certain chords with a staccato attack 
while Langlois de Swart sticks to legato playing. Accents are generally played with note articulation rather than any change in volume. The movement sounds freely played as though a bit of caution is being thrown to the wind, making the final product rather exciting. Fourth movement, Sarabande, a slow, sensual dance. Uh, it's very slow and melodic in the violin, with the harpsichord playing block chords and arpeggios. And I like the way Langlois de Swart leans into the double-stopped chord moments when they come, the double chord moments when they come up, getting a slight swelling of tone. There's a real sensuality to the way the violin line is shaped. Uh, he's adroitly accompanied by the attentive Taylor on the harpsichord. Fifth movement, rondo, which means rondo. That's going to be a repeating tune. This is a slowish final movement with a repeating moaning figure in the violin, or at least it's played that way with a heavy low tone. This is a pretty long movement at 6 minutes and 23 seconds. The excursions away from the rondo theme are all in a similar character to the theme itself, making one unsure when one is hearing the rondo theme again at times. I mean, if you hear it enough times, I mean, you'll figure it out. Um, it all melts together in a compelling way is what I mean, though. Uh, new sections are usually signaled with a sudden dynamic or register shift. The rondo theme is also played a bit differently each time we hear it. Desfart has a lot of uh, creative ideas, as we find from this movement. He gets a sort of cadenza, starting at 4 minutes and 53 seconds, which he plays with great sensitivity of tone. The last time we hear the rondo theme, it starts very slowly and shyly, but gradually comes back to its initial speed. As for the piece itself, it's a real gem, and this performance is golden. I wouldn't say sample a movement. Hear this in its entirety. This is a really beautiful performance of a really beautiful piece. That's tracks 11 through 15. Track 16, we're back to Francois Francois and Francois Rebel from Les Augustales again. Le théâtre s'éclaire. So the, the theater clears up where the lights come on. This has a crystal clear sound on the harpsichord with plenty of space in the phrasing, making the notes register. The violin comes in at 30 seconds at low volume. And I like this balance. Uh, the harpsichord sounds more present here. There's a nice lightening of tone in a higher register at 48 seconds, communicating the quality of an early morning dream. It's really beautiful. There's no final cadence, though. The piece just ends inconclusively, probably going into the next part of the opera. Okay, on to Louis Francoeur. This is the uh, older brother. Uh, Louis was known as Francoeur the Eldest. This is his sonata in B minor. It's one movement from it. It's the first movement, Largo. Louis was the second son of Joseph Francoeur, a player of the bass viol at the Paris Opera. His works are in the French style, dance suite form, and a style which maintains a dance-like grace alongside rhetorical accentuation. So we only get one movement of this work. It's got a winding down quality to it. The chords and melody are always heading to a lower tonality. This is taken at a true Largo speed, and Desfart makes full use of the space that tempo gives to fatten his tone, yet still make every note stand out. Taylor is again constantly playing. These composers gave the harpsichord a lot to do as far as arpeggiating <laughs> the chord goes. Or he's playing the continuo and they're just giving him chords, and this is what he's coming up with, which would be even more amazing. I'm not really sure how this is written out. It's sort of like a jazz chart. You get the mm. chord and you got to figure out what to play by yourself. That's generally what the basso continuo gets. Tracks 18 through 19, Francois Francoeur and Francois Rebel again. Uh, this is from, track 18 is from uh, Tarsus et Zélie from 1728. So an earlier opera for them. This is a rondo and it's very graceful as the marking gracieusement indicates. In much the same quality as the previous movement by Louis Francoeur. 
these pieces fit well together. We hear the Rondo theme three times in this minute and 57 second piece, which that's pretty amazing that he squeezes all that in there. The theme and its intervening material are all brief. There's a lightning of the sound for the final iteration of the theme. Track 19 is um, their opera, Skanderberg, hmm. <laughs> from 1735. Premier et seconde air. It's an upbeat composition with strongly articulated dancing rhythm. At 37 seconds, there's a sudden change to something quieter and more modest, but still with a strong dancing rhythm. We go back to the first air at about a minute and 18 seconds, this time with even more vigor in the rhythm. Okay, Louis Francoeur, again, we get a full work from him this time. This is the older brother of the Francoeurs. This is um, his Sonata in E minor, opus one, number four, from his first book of sonatas for violin and, and basso continuo. First movement is Adagio. Now, a lot of French works will go slow, fast, slow, fast. That was sort of the style in France at the time. And this, this is like that. So Louis Francoeur is very much in the French style. The first movement is an adagio. The harpsichord has the lead at the beginning as the violin outlines a simple melody. The theme has been subtly passed to Desfart and he continues it as the harpsichord is given interesting counter melodies to listen for. So keep an ear out for the harpsichord as well. Second movement, Alemanda, the Alemand, a moderately paced Alemand, maybe a bit on the quick side. The harpsichord keeps up a constantly moving figure as the violin melodizes above. There's a second section that speeds up, gives the violin more complex figuration to play. Third movement, Courant, has a dancing, upbeat feel to it, played at a quick tempo. Even at this speed, Langlois de Swart manages to get some stretched legato accents on certain notes. He varies his tone a lot. There are some rough edges to the bowing during quick passages that come across as aggressive, so it's a bold approach he's using. There's a pretty impressive quick trill by Taylor right before the final cadence, too. Uh, the fourth movement is a jiga, a jig. Similar speed to the previous movement, only in 6-8 time this time, and it's played with the rhythm up front. You can hear the harpsichord accenting each downbeat as the violin plays the dancing line and engages in some question and answer lines with himself. Track 24. This is the first time on this album we're hearing Louis-Joseph Francoeur. This is a chacon. And it's called the Chacon que j'ai fait pour donner à mon oncle. Now, Louis-Joseph was Francois Francoeur's nephew. And the title of this means the Chacon that I gave to my uncle. It's a pretty <laughs> simple uh, name. All right, Louis-Joseph was Louis' son. When Louis died in 1745, Francois took Louis-Joseph under his wing, securing his musical mm -hmm. education and becoming his mentor. What a nice family. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if my family would do this for me. <laughs> <laughs> Louis-Joseph inherited Francois' music collection. The tempo is quicker than I would have thought for this because the Chacon is usually played slowly. This is played with energy. Desvart has a winding line and Taylor has a lot of material to play in the accompaniment or he gives himself a lot of material to play. The quiet variation at around a minute and five seconds is particularly gentle, a complete motion change from the previous track. At a minute and 42 seconds, the variation has some aggressive figuration played over splashes of notes from Taylor. These Chacon variations come fast and furious with no warning, a kaleidoscope of differing material and moods. The playing is so good that the piece comes across as immediate, immensely compelling and appealing. One could imagine this being played in a much slower, stately fashion, but not here. This is exciting. Exciting as Baroque music goes. Okay. There's one more quiet, wistful variation at 4 minutes and 10 seconds. 
which suddenly takes off into quickly bowed figures in which Desfarta starts digging in. This is a really good piece. And just by the title, it sounds like something he seems to have just tossed off. He wanted to give to mm-hmm. impress his uh, uncle with it. I was impressed, and I'm sure Francois was too. Track 25, uh, Prelude pour Violon. This is an improvisation. It's not by any of the Francois. This is um, Langlois de Svart's, um solo violin improvisation. He, I think he has one of these on every one of his albums. Well, not all of them, but um, he's done this before. I imagine he has a pre-planned chord pattern in his head while he's doing this because it doesn't come across as completely extemporized. It starts out moodily and then moves to changing chords in an arpeggiated figure across the strings. Okay, we get a, another solo work by Francois Francoeur. This is a sonata in G major, opus one, number 10. Um, this is going to go slow, fast, slow, fast. First movement, allemande, as bright sounding with the harpsichord chiming and the violin playing lyrically. The violin phrases with strong legato and the tempo is again on the quick side, making the piece lively. Desvart constantly changes his tone and phrasing to constantly draw the ear in. At 2 minutes and 30 seconds, the music is sparer, with the harpsichord less splashy, and this leads us to a quiet cadence at the end. It's a really lovely movement. Second movement, Allegro, has a lively rhythm taken at a quick tempo. This is track 27, by the way. The thematic material has a rustic feel to it. The ensemble at this speed is remarkable, and the material comes across appealingly. There are some very cool dissonances at a minute and 30 seconds. Cool meaning, cool, dude. (laughs) <laughs> a minute and 30 seconds as the melodic line veers downward and towards a cadence. Section repeats after this, leading to a splashy final chord. Third movement, Sicilienne, appropriately slow tempo with a yearning melody from the violin and the harpsichord playing with this muted lute sound uh, very quietly in the background. I like the way the theme drifts downward to the cadence in the middle section. Uh, the repeat of the opening material is sensitively played. Fourth movement, Presto. A lively and quickly played movement. It's absolutely joyful, full of sunshine. And again, there are chords set and section changes that happen so quickly that if you blink, you'll miss them and wonder what happened. Uh, we get some of uh, Langlois de Svart's rough bowing style at a minute and 55 seconds, after which he sweetens up with the line leading to the cadence. Lots of contrast, even at this speed. Another new composer for this recording, Jean Durocher from the 18th century. His premier suite in C major, we get one movement only, a prelude. It's very brief, 46 seconds, and it's a solo for Justin Taylor. I mean, hmm. their team, Langlois Desfarts, took one. Justin Taylor deserves one, too. He plays in an appropriate, chiming fashion. The piece consists of arpeggiated chords. And we end, as we began, with Francois Francoeur and Francois Rebel on track 31. This is from uh, Le Prince de Noisy. <laughs> Which could be read in English as Le Prince de Noisy. <laughs> That's what it looks like. Yeah, it does look like. It is noisy. Okay. The uh, movement or the uh, section is called Pour plaire l'art ne peut prêter qu'une faible imposture. Oh, man. To, to give pleasure, art can't make a weak imposture. I, I can't really translate this one anyway. <laughs> at, at least not. You know, <laughs> off the cuff. Okay, a slow, sensitively played movement in which the uh, ear keeps being drawn in the violin's opening high notes, which keeps returning via a grace note. The work has the feeling of a fantasy, an intro into a magical world on the stage. It ends on a gently 
taken very satisfying high note on the violin. What a magical way to end a really impressive album. Yeah, when you listen to this album, I want to give you a little guide here. Be sure to keep an ear on the harpsichord along with the violin. Uh, Taylor is playing a lot of interesting things that complement and reinforce the violin's melodic material. He's a bit in the background in the recording, but you can listen in and hear him. He's, he's, he is audible. The album was a pleasure from beginning to end. Desfart's always inventive ways of articulating Baroque material keeps the ear active. Taylor brings a lot of energy to his playing, making this music come alive. Five stars. I just love everything that the two of these guys do, really. So I really liked this a lot. Yeah, this is really great Baroque music, most of which I haven't heard of before, even the composer's name. So it was a fresh listen. Yeah, even better. <laughs> New is always better for me. A lot of variety in uh, tempos and styles. Uh, it also is full of little harmonic surprises. You'll be in minor and suddenly you're into a major key section. And uh, so there's constant kind of invention and uh, surprises to listen to inside of it. And yeah, Langlois de Swart's tone is really, really nice. I think that made uh, one of our best of last year, wasn't it? The Mad Lover. Yeah. And uh, just enjoyed listening to that. And his tone sounds just as great here. And it's nice to hear him with Justin Taylor's harpsichord. Uh, he's got tons of technique and nice kind of phrasing styles. And the interplay together is really wonderful. I enjoyed this a lot too. The music has that real sort of attention to the timbre and uh, also great phrasing of French music. You know, even in these earlier periods, you can see that sort of sensibility in the music. And uh, yeah, put this on any time of the day and uh, it just sounds so good. Yeah, I have a very strong feeling that uh, Langlois de Swart is going to be uh, on the, on the year-end list again this year. <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see how long his, uh, his, his winning streak uh, goes. Yeah. One thing I want to mention about his playing to listen for... If, if you listen to jazz, you know, we have both jazz and classical um, listeners to this podcast, hopefully both, you know, yeah. <laughs> like us who listen to both at the same time. A lot of times jazz in jazz improvisations, you'll get, you know, this inspiration of the moment sort of thing where, you know, they'll sort of do something really amazing. In classical music, most musicians don't really do anything really improvisatory. But when you do, you're kind of, you have to keep to the notes that are written on the page. Pierre-Dimland Gaudissoir has this sort of improvisatory feel to him, the way he'll like stretch certain notes or accent mm. certain ones or the way he'll manipulate his tone to bring something out. It really sounds very spontaneous and in the moment. Uh, so keep an ear out for that. He really just gen just generate a bit of um, excitement when he does that. It has like, yeah. um, you don't want to say improvisatory feel the way like jazz does, but in the approach, it, it just feels like there are these like, in the moment sort of decisions that he's making. It comes across that way anyway. I don't know how planned out it is, but it doesn't sound that way. And it's one of the reasons I really like him as a violinist, and I'm really looking forward to everything he puts out really at this point. The second classical album of the night was a real find. I got to tell you, mm. this was uh, this really knocked me out. The composer is Alberto Hemzi, lived um, from 1896 to 1975. Is that a six or an eight? I can't even see anymore. The Bright Lights, it's 1898, sorry, to 1975. Uh, chamber Works, and this is um, by the ARC Ensemble. ARC is a, um, it's an acronym for Artists of the Royal Conservatory. And they are Erica Raum, Marie Berard, Emily Cruspe, or Cruspe on violin, 
Stephen Dan or Dan on viola, Julian Atman on viola, Tom Weeb or Weeb on cello, Kevin Afat on piano, and they are a Canadian ensemble. This is on the Chandos label. Alberto Hemsey, who is he? Well, he's best known among devotees of Sephardic vocal music for his Coplas Sephardis, which are not on this album, because this is those would be vocal works, and this is a chamber album. The Coplas Sephardis are a set of 60 songs collected over many decades. His chamber music is less known, and this album aims to remedy that, and uh, remedy that it should, because uh, this was a pretty exciting album hmm. for me, personally. The chamber music shares the same roots as the Sephardic music. Sephardim are Jews who were expelled from Spain in March 1492 by King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, and wound up, yeah, the same ones that sent Columbus to America. They were, <laughs> they were getting rid of everybody. <laughs> and wound up creating a diaspora which extended beyond the entire Mediterranean rim from present-day Morocco to Egypt, through the Holy Land, Syria, Turkey, Greece, the Balkans, and Italy. Sounds like New Yorkers, really. We're, we're the same. We're all over the world now. And also to France, the Netherlands, and even as far as Iran and Iraq. So there's a kind of a cultural string that sort of connects all those places. The Sephardim had a rich culture and a separate language called Ladino, with a D, uh, which is a Castilian dialect that acquired elements of other languages, including Hebrew, Aramaic, Arabic, Turkish, and Greek. For most of his life, Hemsey lived and composed outside the European mainstream, and researchers and musicians were either unaware of his legacy or unable to access it because it wasn't really in the European mainstream. Mm. It was kind of a, a more ethnic sort of uh, legacy. This changed to 2000, in 2004 when his widow, Miriam Capaluto Hemsey, donated his entire archive to the Institut Européen de Musique Juive, the European Institute of Jewish Music in Paris. He was born in Turgutlu, which was which is also known as Kasaba, in Anatolia, which is now known as Turkey. Uh, the town is about 35 miles east of Izmir, which in those days was called Smyrna. And uh, his parents um, were Simha Chikurel and David Cohen. Uh, they both moved to Dugutlu from the Italian port city of Livorno, which following the Alhambra decree had hosted a bustling Sephardic community. Hemsey had Italian citizenship because of his parents. Uh, so he was an Italian Jew. Now, um, think about, um, I don't know if anyone's ever read um, Italo Svevo's book, uh, you know, The Conscience of Zeno, but he's the, uh, the main character in that book is the uh, character that uh, James Joyce um, based Leopold Bloom on. Hmm. And so Zvevo was an Italian Jew, and he's, he's a pretty funny character in that book as well. He was transplanted many times in his life due to upheavals all over the Middle East and Eastern Europe, not to mention the effects of World War II and the Nazi influences over the places he found himself in. This is a guy who was constantly on the move, either uh, just hmm. traveling or um, escaping from oncoming uh, <laughs> trouble. He made his final home in Paris where he died of lung cancer on 7 October 1975. He was alive at a time when a fascination with national folk music had taken root in Europe. Think of Bartok and Kodai in Hungary, uh, Dvorak and Smetana in Bohemia, and Vaughan Williams and Holst in England. That's Holst. Man, I can't say Holst tonight. There we go. Gustav Holst. 
um, he of the planets. He, Holst also, we, people who know the planets probably don't know this, Holst was also a collector of folk music. Hmm. They're the most famous examples of people who uh, transcribed folk music and incorporated it into their larger comp- compositions. Hemsey did the same. He surveyed the music of the vast Sephardic diaspora. And I've, I have to say, I've generalized the information in the CD booklet here, which is very detailed. Uh, the booklet written by Simon Winberg, or Wein- Weinberg, W-Y-N-B-E-R-G, has an extensive note on Hemsey's life and the history of the Sephardic Jewish community he came from. It's very detailed and highly recommended reading. And on Chandos's website, the the page for this uh, CD, they only reproduce like a, a five line paragraph of it. But it's pretty detailed reading. It's really interesting. And this is a composer you should get to know, especially in his uh, chamber music. Although I guess vocal aficionados would want you to hear the vocal music. The first. Three tracks are from um, his, or they are, his Danze Nuziali Greche. This is an Italian title. Opus 37 bis, written in 1956. This means a Greek wedding dances. Uh, And this piece was originally written for solo piano. Here it's for cello and piano. Each dance honors a different wedding attendee. And it's kind of funny, really. (laughs) It it goes across. The first uh, one is um, in honor of the... um, mother-in-law and he's using a slang word here pethara pethara maybe it's a greek word i'm not sure but swotera would be um the mother-in-law in italian it's a highly passionate cello line and he plays <laughs> mostly solo with the piano coming in to interject chords often of a dissonant sort so we're getting a bit of a caricature of this uh this woman mm. by 51 seconds we're into the dance character of the piece the circular melody is folk-like in character there's a quieter middle section with a Spanish rhythm. And then by the 2 minutes and 41 seconds, we're back to the whirling dance figure. The second movement is in honor of the uh, sposa, the uh, nymphi, which is the bride. And she gets an elegant accompaniment from the piano, the bass note and chord on the 1 and 3. Very beautiful on her wedding day, of course. The cello plays the mutedly passionate melody rather quietly. This reminds me of the third of Bartok's Romanian folk dances at this point, if you know that, for violin and piano. At around 50 seconds, a new theme is heard. The piece comes across as modest. It's modal and very attractive. A faster rhythm erupts in the second movement, the second minute. These brief pieces have a lot of unexpected ideas in them, more than their folk quality would suggest. And the third movement, in honor of the godfather, the compare. Uh, this is um, Allegro con Spirito. It's a folk-like dance, also rather quiet. Um, normally, you'd expect to hear pieces like this in the previous two movements on the violin. So this is an interesting approach because it's for cello and piano here. Um, the arc ensemble musicians find just the right amount of passion and restraint to put this music across perfectly. This particular movement acquires the circling melody familiar from East European and Gypsy music, and apparently Sephardic music too, at certain points. I like the effects on the cello and the high end of the piano at the end. It's creatively realized. And I want to say something about this. This is going to be a point I want to make throughout this album. This is music that doesn't have a performance history to draw on. So these musicians are really playing this from the score without any kind of... I I guess they have um, traditional Sephardic music in their heads, maybe something that they've heard from that. But... um, they don't really have anything beyond that to go on as far as uh, performing this music goes. And they seem to really nail it perfectly. It sounds mm. fantastic. It's got good energy to it. It's It's got this kind of smoldering passion, you know, It's where it's kind of 
just a little restrained, but feels like it might burst out or at any moment. It's really fantastically realized. And I'd say that's true for the entire album. So listen for that. Tracks four through six. Tre arie antiche dalle copla sefardis. Okay, so he's taken his um, collection of uh, Sephardic songs, taken three of them, the arie antiche, because they're old um, Sephardic melodies, and uh, written three um, instrumental pieces from them for string quartet. First movement is a balata. It's drawn from Hemsey's vocal collection, Copas Sephardis. The movement is number eight in the series, if you happen to have that lying around. The song is called El Rey por Munch Madruga, The King Rising Early in the Morning. And it's also known as Landarico, and it's a song widely known in Sephardic communities throughout Europe and the Middle East. So if you happen to be a member of that community, you'll probably recognize the melody. I envy you that. I really like, you know, being Hmm. in the know about musical things, as you might imagine. <laughs> anyway, this has a warm string opening with rising and uh, falling legato chord patterns. It suddenly changes at uh, 30 seconds to a dance rhythm with pizzicati in the cello punctuating the rhythm as the higher strings play the theme. Again, there are a lot of surprising, sudden changes of rhythm and character. Very appealing piece. Second movement, canzone, or song. This is number 27 of the Coplas, and it draws its material from De que lloras Blanca Niña, Why Do You Cry, My Fair Girl. It's all pizzicato at the beginning, then a splash of string chords, followed by a melody in the viola or low on the violin. There's a haze over the tone. At a minute and 30 seconds, there's a droning chord in the bass with the higher instruments dripping their harmonies downward like uh, wax on melting candles. Again, the themes have a restrained passion to them. Third movement, Rondo. This is an arrangement of number 12 called Estavaze, La Mora, and Sube Estar. So this is going to be Spanish, I guess. There was a Moorish girl in her happy state. The lyrics are the same as a text that accompanies a children's game. But there's no, of course, there are no vocals on this album. So we get the um, string quartets playing the melodies. The folk-like melody has an appealing dotted rhythm quality to it. Dun, da, dun, da, dun. The accompanimental style changes often, with pizzicati accompanying at one time, then a counter melody in the cello, then a staccato accompaniment. Very creative. Um, these performances all show just the right amount of restraint without completely smothering the earthy quality of the works. Really brilliant performances, Arc Ensemble. Nice work. Track seven through nine. Okay, we're getting a little bit more into the uh, more arty music at this point. In fact, the the, rec- the uh, album goes from sort of like the more traditional to the uh, more sort of um, say formally realized. Let's say track seven through nine are the Pilpul Sonata, Opus twenty seven for violin and piano. And this, uh, the booklet says, an excellent example of Hemsey's infusing his composition with Sephardic infected melodies and gestures, and supporting them by a sophisticated counterpoint and a rich harmonic palette. Pilpul is derived from the Hebrew word for pepper and is now applied to the analytical arguments used to interpret Talmudic rules and to the finicky, this is according to the booklet, (laughs) even casuistic claims and distinctions employed to defend them. Uh, Casuistic means that it has no function in ordinary life. (laughs) So try to think of like uh, medieval, like, Christian monks arguing about how many uh, angels can dance on the head of a pin. I mean, they'd really get into these passionate arguments about this, and it really has nothing to do with anything that could be of any use to anyone. 
So that's what that means. The arguments are simply examples of intellectual bravura and aren't substantive or applicable to the real world. In the score's short preface, Hemsey tells us that the sonata is based on three such arguments, in quotation marks, which were heard on separate evenings in uh, Cairo, in Egypt. The work is an absorbing mix of musical ingredients and influences, including touches of jazz and impressionism and a wonderfully wry sense of humor. Yeah, it would have been nice to actually have like a sample of this in my head that I can kind of imagine. This must have been fun to write, I would say. It is, mm. It's a good listen, too. Um, the first extended movement we've had here, it's 8 minutes and 30 seconds, is um, this Allegro Comodo track. Um, what track is this? Seven. The music is arranged in an interesting manner, starting with pattern, then featuring a declaiming violin playing solo with occasional chords in the piano to fill in the harmony. So this is the person making his argument, I guess, when you hear that uh, violin sound. The piano part is by turns beautifully crystalline and a bit comical in between its turns in the high end. Uh, the musical lines come across as speech-like with phrases shaped like sentences, as is fitting for the theme. I'm really impressed by the individual members of the ensemble's very expressive shaping of their lines. The speech-like quality of these melodies is put across exceptionally well. It's as though we're hearing different personality types speaking in turns. The violin line at the six-minute mark and after is more florid than any we've heard in the movement. So I guess this guy's inspired now and really uh, making his meaningless argument. <laughs> he's, he's, he's demonstrating intellectual bravura here. By the end, we've got some folk-like themes, and the movement ends on a final passionate statement from one of the violins, with the piano and violin providing a quick, quiet cadence. The second movement, Larghetto Meditativo, has a muted, veiled sound from the viola. I think it's the viola. Just, it's in that range. It could be a low violin, too. At the beginning, with the piano laying down bass notes and rolled chords. At a minute and 20 seconds, the violin plays a sliding melody, glissandoing from note to note um, the material changes rapidly I kind of wonder what that glissando means to someone like making an argument mm. like sliding from idea to idea maybe I'm, I don't have the examples I can't say but it really did kind of get my mind working um, the material changes rapidly there's a beautiful tender moment just after 2 minutes and 30 seconds the movement moves slowly and is mostly quiet and vocally contemplative rather than meditative I'd say the third movement, track nine, Allegretto Rapsodico. Some wandering downward arpeggiated figures from the piano open the movement. The violin comes in with a repeated note phrase that proceeds as a comma statement followed by a period statement. So it's almost like a compound sentence. You have like a little pause and then the phrase ends. Double stopped folk melodies are next. The downward movement of the harmony is characteristic of the movement. It keeps moving down. Uh, there are several dancing folk melodies as well. We keep coming back to the one we hear at 4 minutes and 4 seconds. First heard toward the beginning of the movement. I guess this guy is really holding on to his idea. He doesn't want to <laughs> let it go. A passionate statement ends the piece. An enjoyable work. It tracks 10 through 13. Quintet for viola and string quartet. This is in G major. The first movement is labeled concertino, which is a little uh, unusual. So the work, um, it indicates that the work is closer to a concerto than a traditional two-viola string quintet. Its thematic material veers away from Hemsey's usual Sephardic sources, and the energy of the Allegretto con brio is reminiscent of a stamping dance. So this has, it starts with this kind of odd, like, uh-oh, two-chord descending pattern. It just sound, I just remind me of someone saying, uh-oh, <laughs> listen for that. I think you'll, you'll hear, you'll, 
You'll know what I'm talking about when you hear it. It's got this two chord descending pattern opening the piece. It's easy to identify when it comes back by that uh-oh quality that it has in the spaces in between. Uh, the strings playing rushing lines, not in parallel motion. Material changes from one pattern to another quickly and often, as by now we understand to be Hemsey's style. It's really interesting, along with the style of the folk music he's incorporating into his music. Clever orchestration throughout, too. I especially like the pizzicati in the fourth minute. Second movement, burlesca, Allegretto Spiritoso, is close to a parody of a bucolic English jig. This does have a skipping quality to it, but uh, to me, it's not jig-like, so I guess that's why the note said it was uh, a parody. It's pretty happy-go-lucky melody and rhythm in 6-8 time. At a minute and 43 seconds, there's a quick change to a new rhythm with pizzicati in the bass accentuating the rhythm, which is now in 4-4. Four, four. Uh, the 6-8 skipping rhythm and melody return after the fourth minute, and there's a satisfying full cadence at the end. Third movement, berceuse, which is a lullaby, is introspective. It's quietly played in the rhythm, with the viola taking the brief lines of the theme, I think. It's a viola. Unusually, this movement sticks close to its opening material. It maintains interest throughout, though, the 4 minutes and 37 seconds, simply because the lines and orchestration are so attractive. Fourth movement, rondo, almost certainly has its origins in Greek dance, say the notes. The rhythm has syncopated accents. There's a change from the accented dance rhythm at two minutes, but we're soon back to the original theme and the brief movement is over after two minutes and 38 seconds. The final track is a Meditation, Opus 16, written before 1931. It's labeled in Armenian style for cello and piano, grave ad libitum, so freely. This is the earliest work on this recording, and the piano writing evokes the Greek santuri, a hammered dulcimer similar to the cymbalom. The cello draws out some throaty, long, low notes as the piano simply underlines the harmony with rolled chords. The piano plays a continuation of the cello theme at around 48 seconds, and afterwards the cello embarks on its main theme, a long, deep legato theme played with restrained passion. The piano comments again. Uh, he ends his line, there's a pause, and the cello starts something new in a higher register. A new theme starts in the third minute in the cello, now in the middle of its range. The piano gently plays a hammered out melody, and the cello is back in its low range by the middle of the fifth minute and starts winding down his melody. The piece doesn't move around much, but its melodies are so attractive that one doesn't mind. And that's the album. This is all very attractive music and creatively formed as well, with interesting idea after interesting idea and appealing folk melodies that are irresistible. It's attractive music and all immediately likable and a real discovery. Um, I'm really impressed by the playing of the arc ensemble on this album. It's not easy to get such perfectly judged expression out of music that doesn't have much of a performance history, yet the ensemble seems to have the perfect measure of this music, providing just the right amount of passion and restraint at the right times, and always achieving a clean, clear sound. Good sound quality on the album too, and you can't go wrong here. Absolutely hear this. So I'm, I feel like I'm two for two tonight. I was really happy this week. Yeah, another completely fresh and unique kind of sound here. Completely new music to me. And yeah, I find it really enjoyable, even on a first listen, to figure out what's going on. Mm. It's pretty easy going. Most of these pieces, because of the folky nature, they're very rhythmic. And there's a lot of variety. Those types of rhythms are constantly changing. 
and the kind of moods that pieces create are very different. I found the arrangements are not overly dense, so it's very easy to hear the individual lines in the string instruments, and right. you get a lot of very cool passing harmonies uh, in the movements of the strings uh, throughout these works that I found very interesting, and also these very interesting modes from the different cultures create some interesting passages and uh, they also sort of imply and then result in explored kind of interesting harmonic movements, all of which I found fascinating. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's a completely fresh sound a composer that I would have never heard of if you hadn't picked this. So Right. Yeah, what a surprise. Choice. I'm glad I, it's, it was just a lucky, a lucky yeah. pick. Yeah. Uh, I should mention that the, the Arc Ensemble on Chandos has a, um, they're calling their series of um, releases Music in Exile. So mm. all of the composers they're recording are um, people who have moved around a lot. Maybe they were displaced or maybe they were just itinerant. Okay. Right. But um, they're, they're, it's a long series by now, but um, mm. I haven't heard any of the other ones. Um, I'd be interested in hearing them, but this was a real find. I really mm. enjoyed this a lot. Uh, absolutely hear this, I would say. I will repeat that. Okay. So I close off 2022 with my last classical recording of an American, a contemporary American composer, Caroline Shaw. And this is her album Evergreen uh, on the Nonsuch label. This uh, features Caroline Shaw herself. She's the composer, but she also sings on this album. And uh, the Ataka Quartet, consisting of Amy Schroeder and Dominic Salerni on violin, Nathan Schramm on viola, and Andrew Yee on cello. All right, so this is a pretty interesting uh, collection of music. Now, um, Shaw, the first piece is called um, Three Essays. And the first essay is called Nimrod. Nimrod <laughs> has, has sort of entered the English language in a, in, in a way of insulting people. But Nimrod was the uh, guy in the uh, Old Testament in the Bible who supervised the building of the Tower of Babel, mm. which um, God struck <laughs> down. And the reason we're all learning all these languages like Japanese today is because um, of that event, yeah. according to the Bible. Anyway, otherwise we'd all be speaking the same language. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> this guy had to try to build a tower to heaven. And now he had to do it. He we, had to do it. He had to do it. We'd all understand each other otherwise. Anyway, uh, Shaw herself says that this piece uh, began as a simple exercise in translating the lilt and rhythm of Marilyn Robinson's prose into music now okay well she mentions her music is uh, usually inspired by visual art or food or some other odd physics quirk in science but here she wanted to lunge into language with all its complex splintering and welding of units and patterns i really like that i kind of relate to this woman uh caroline shaw that is she thinks you know in, a, in an interesting way like putting pieces together and, and things like that i like that splintering and welding of units and patterns idea. The piece begins with a gentle lilt like Robinson herself speaking, but soon begins to fray as the harmony unravels into tumbling fragments and unexpected repetitive tunnels. Now this is from the notes, and this is really exactly what you hear, leading to various things built into the materials from the beginning, like the odd way dreams can transform one thing into another. The beginning is, um, uh, she also mentions, by the way, that the specific book she was um, she was listening to Marilyn Robinson like recite a book on tape of her book, uh, The Givenness of Things, which is a series of essays. Um, I've read a few of her books. I've read that one. And she's got a famous novel called Gilead, which people may have read. It won a, I think it won a Pulitzer Prize. But she's a pretty famous and a really interesting thinker is Marilyn Robinson. 
the beginning is um of this piece three essays the first essay nimrod it starts vibratoless with clearly articulated chords and a pizzicato as well um, by 27 seconds, the music is already uh, swirling into something else. The string sound is pleasant and expressive, always very clear. The chords are always very kind of clean sounding. There's, there's good um, recorded sound on this recording too, and rather calming when it's not fraying. There's a cool lifting of the tone in all the instruments at a minute and 35 seconds. Cool meaning cool, dude, again. Not cool as in emotionless. Uh, the unraveling harmony part is also a fairly pleasant listen. The whole work is well-constructed and easy to follow. Patterns change rapidly, but don't meld into each other. Uh, she, she does kind of tend to compose in sort of blocks, like one idea will end and then there'll be kind of like mm. a, yeah. almost like a line separating each section. You know, they don't melt into each other. This is her style. It's easy to tell when a new section has started because of that. There's a lovely quiet section in the six minute with high harmonics and low rhythmic pizzicato rhythmic pattern. The uh, second essay of the three essays, track two, is Echo. Stylistic contrast to the first and third essays here. The title touches on a number of references. Um, one thing that Shaw does, um, she'll take an idea and it'll have many different applications and she'll want to get them all in. In this case, the idea of the echo is uh, the con concept of the echo chamber that social media fosters in America's political discourse, and also the echo function in hypertext preprocessor scripting language in web design. <laughs> well, there's something she knows about that I don't. <laughs> yeah. And of course, a natural echo when you say hello out there, and then it, you hear that again. Okay, so we go into this with no pause. It starts with a scraping sound on the strings, followed by a calm, warm, drawn-out chord. This repeats. We get some harmony, then ghostly harmonics, followed by a repeating chord pattern. Chord harmonics come back in the fourth minute, quietly played. At the end, the faint scratching sound of the beginning returns, and we hear drawn-out chords played with the warmth of the bow. Now, one of the things I like about um, Shaw's writing for string quartet is that she really likes harmonics. They're used on a lot of these pieces, and I just love that sound, so I'm always sort of happy to hear them. And she uses them quite a lot. There's also a lot of pizzicati as well. All right, the third of the three essays is uh, called uh, Ruby, and it returns to the fragmentation and angularity that was introduced in the first essay, but uh, attempts to tame it into some kind of logical structure. The title refers to both the programming language Ruby, which was developed in Japan in the mid-1990s, as well as the gemstone called the Ruby. Anyway, this starts out with a set of chords. I should mention, these pieces, the ideas go by pretty quickly, and yeah. um, I'm giving sort of a summary, and I was finding this really hard to do when I was writing it, so I'm not really going to give a very clear idea of what's happening in this music. You really have to hear it because there really are a lot more ideas in them than I'm articulating here. After first being heard, chords are reached via glissando until a rhythm starts at around 40 seconds. It sounds like a perpetual motion type of minimalist melody. Moment of chaos occurs at the second minute, but it evaporates and a repeating pattern crescendos until it breaks up and resolves into the minimalist rhythm again. When I say minimalist, think like Philip Glass, Steve Reich, how you have these kind of like motor rhythms. She's using something like that, except that it's not defining the whole piece. It's just in certain sections, or it is a section that comes back. Slower chord patterns and faster rhythms alternate. 
At three minutes and 50 seconds, there's an obstinate repeating note in the cello that gets passed around and played at different speed as harmonic material is played by the rest of the ensemble. I, I'm, I can kind of get ideas with that repeating note being passed around about, you know, logical structures like programming languages, that sort of thing. I guess it could be evocative of that. Okay. Um, so at around four minutes and 40 seconds, there's an aggressive pizzicato section that moves to arpeggiated harmony and a final ending chord. So, yeah, an appealing work. I liked uh, her. She gets a crisp, clean sound out of her um, her chords and her writing. And uh, the Ataka Quartet uh, performs this exceptionally well. It's really good. Fourth track, and so. So this is a vocal work. And starts with chord harmonics, a sound that's part of Shaw's musical signature. Shaw is the vocalist on this, as well as the author of the text, which is rather death-haunted, and wonders rather philosophically if the memory of there, so it's obviously the author, and some unnamed you, lives their lives, will rhyme with anything in nature after they're gone. So a thoughtful kind of hmm. sort of young, young person's philosophical text, I'd say. So I, the, you know, the college type of, try, of being deep. Anyway, she rather intones the words. Very appealing for that. Okay. She rather intones the words. She's got a smooth voice and sings in a natural tone, not operatically, but rather like an indie rock singer without pushing. Uh, the second verse is sung and accompanied softly with gentle raindrop type arpeggios. And the third verse is more minimal yet. The fifth movement, um, Blueprint. This work was commissioned by the Aizuri Quartet, whose name comes from aizuri e a style of Japanese woodblock painting with blue ink. So this work takes its title from this printing tradition, as well as the standard architectural practice of proposing a structure. It began as a loose harmonic reduction of parts of Beethoven's string quartet, opus 18, number six. Uh, Shaw wanted to write something that feels like a reverential nod to the past, a childlike smearing of regal harmonies, and a boozy late night hang. Uh, reading through chamber music with friends. So that's what the notes say. What I say, it starts with short phrases on the upper strings with the cello playing longer sustained notes. At a minute and 25 seconds, a minimalist repeating rhythm begins with some rather amusing dissonances creeping into the chords. Uh, this resolves into chorale-like chords and then a brief happier rhythm that immediately breaks up into pizzicati, though the feel is kept there are a lot of quick metamorphoses of the rhythm too many to detail um, though the basic minimalist feel is maintained we've been hearing pizzicati throughout this album and this is a pizzicati section of this work in the fifth minute it eventually disappears into staccato playing then a second a section with a phrase being passed around over a downward repeating two chord pattern is heard there's a sudden loud fast rush to the end but the very last notes are taken pianissimo Track six is a piece called Other Song. Shaw sings this and uh, wrote the text as well. It's hard to say what the text is about. It's pretty abstract. Um, the words are, find where you go behind the glare is what I know. Uh, the melody climbs higher and on the word higher, her voice glissandos upward, creating dissonance with the clean string lines and chords. Mm. That effect comes back in the strings and voice again and is um, almost um, like... If you know the Beatles song, A Day in the Life, where the orchestra goes from the lowest note to the highest note, it's, it's an effect, something like that, at 2 minutes and 35 seconds. At the climax, she sings uh, Find the Line, and the music quietens as we hear material from the beginning as the piece ends quietly. Okay, the other major work 
on this along with the um, essays is a piece called The Evergreen. It's got four movements in it. And that's what we're going to hear in tracks seven through 10. Looking at the booklet notes, Evergreen was written in inspiration for a specific tree that Shaw saw while on a walk in an evergreen forest in Canada. Uh, in this movement, Shaw takes the image of moss as a dense growth of very delicate micro versions of leaves and applies it to the violin bow, uh, which looked at, at under a microscope reveals something like a rocky desert landscape or a reptile scales. Then she talks about the particular evergreen tree whose arms were completely covered in moss. It looked like a ceremonial cloak, she says, something that says both you are safe and you are disappearing. That's the image we begin to listen with. The piece has a very quiet opening with very faint string patterns representing the micro version of moss, I'd guess. Um, the sound crescendos, then fades. This all takes some time. In the second minute, we get a quicker crescendo of repeatedly bowed patterns. There are a lot of repeated notes. The movement comes across as atmospheric. At the four minute mark, there are very quiet pickings at the strings with light bowed harmonics as well. Uh, these quiet evocative sounds do a natural fade at the end. This is incidentally a good movement or really a good album to listen to in headphones. There are really a lot of very quiet details that are really appealing, especially if you can act, if you pick them up. I was listening to this in my, uh, you know, live in my room with the heater on. So there was the, the <laughs> heater noise going on at the same time. So I was kind of losing a bit of this. I had to get the headphones on later. Anyway, the second movement, STEM. Um, the evergreen in question has a trunk with curves and bends, and in the composition, one violinist holds a single note. It's joined one by one by the others. Uh, they lean out slow, away slowly, splitting the pitch, undermining the singularity, smearing the pitch, then lean back toward the shared tone. So we get a lot of these microtones in this work, and I really like that sound. A tree's growth is a balance of many different processes working together. They are interlocking patterns of chemical and physical changes that deliver nutrients through the body. The interlocking rhythms of the four players depend on each other in order to propel forward without falling apart. Okay, a chord does a natural fade in with some leaning towards a more dissonant harmony in the inner voices as it is held. Then it writes itself. I like the rhythmic pattern that starts just before the first minute. Uh, this pattern crescendos and lasts for a while until it suddenly reharmonizes in the second minute the droning bass underneath there's a lot of quicksilver changes to the rhythmic patterns as in all the pieces on this album it ends on a crescendo of while we bowed chords the next movement is called water and uh, her shaw's description of this uh, movement is that it had snowed but the snow is melting during shaw's walk and the sound of water dripping was all around she compares the uh, clarity of the water droplets tones in the foreground and the ghostliness of those further away to the way light is filtered through various greens in the trees near and far and alludes to the alluring chaos of the droplets random punctuation I, I rather liked this idea for this movement it starts very quietly barely audible with gentle pizzicati representing the droplets coming off trees after rain in the forest the movement seems to be trying to be a musical painting or a movie maybe or some kind of 3d mm -hmm. image of that atmosphere the sounds hock it from speaker to speaker well they they move from speaker i don't know maybe hock it's not the right word there the sound eventually gets louder and denser listen from the two minute and 30 second mark for that uh the pizzicati grow more emphatic until about three minutes and 40 seconds when they suddenly stop then resume at a sparser 
and quieter level. This particular movement put me in mind of that um, George Ligeti piece where he has, um, I can't remember what it's called, but with the hundred uh, yeah. metronomes, like the, the old ticking mm-hmm. metronomes and they wind down, they're mechanical. And um, by the end, you're just hearing all these like spectacular rhythms that are just unproducible, unreproducible by human beings. <laughs> it's really cool. But she, the effect is sort of similar here, except that these are all producible by human beings. So they're composed. All right. The last movement of the evergreen is root. In the notes, Shaw merely asks, what inflects the unfurling stem of one's life as it draws time up from our roots through our limbs and then goes on with a long list of tree images? The roots of one's life deep into the past. Okay, she, she, she goes on. There's a long, long list of tree images that follow that statement. This, uh, I think uh, Ms. Shaw does a lot of thinking about things. It starts with a cello playing a repeating pattern that is sequenced into other chords. Uh, the upper strings provide vibratoless chord crescendos. The piece goes on in this way for its length, except that the upper strings eventually take over the cello's rhythm and add some melodic material to it. Sort of like newer growths um, emerging from that center. By the sixth minute, there's a light majesticness to the repeating pattern, and the piece just ends on an interrupted pattern. The last track is a song called Cant Voix Laube. The text is attributed to the Trouvère Gas Brûlé from the 12th century, and it's sung by Caroline Shaw in French. A pattern uh, is played in harmonics in the string quartet, and Shaw sings. The text is about how the singer detests the day because she, I guess in this case, can't be seen with her lover when it's daytime. Uh, the accompaniment varies from warm bowed chords to pizzicato patterns and quirky rhythms. It ends with the quartet playing quiet pizzicati that drift apart and suddenly stop. Okay, now we did some uh, Caroline Shaw um, last year, and it was in a more kind of, I guess you'd call it popular vein. I'm going to mention those somewhere here, but this particular, in, in this case, um, this is her in a more classical vein. But she has the uncanny ability to suggest several genres of music at once via her singing and the sound of the vibratoless strings that she uses. Um, also, the fact that there's a lack of vibrato kind of puts the music in a this sort of period instrument world of the of the past as well, even though the harmony doesn't really suggest that. The music is simple and direct on the surface, and that directness suggests a lack of guile and an open-heartedness, which is very welcome in our day and age. It, it feels good to be listening to this music. The harmony is pretty straightforward, uh, as is Shaw's uh, singing style, and suggests to me like uh, an indie pop music uh, person. Some It's cool because it's not in the mainstream, in other words. Mm. It's just sort of its own thing. It's sort of a classical version of the type of music that NPR tends to favor. It's quirky, sometimes playing by its own rules. Um, there's a kind of indie hipness to it that I can't quite put my finger on, really. It doesn't sound quite like anything else, but has a vibe that's going to make it attractive to the types of listeners who are, like me, overeducated in the humanities. (laughs) And like Shaw herself. I'm drawn to this, and I certainly like it a lot more than the music we heard last year. Like, on her album's Narrow Sea and Let the Soil Play Its Simple Part, which were both written for the Saw Ensemble, and I didn't really like either of them, really. It's, I don't know, it was the performances didn't really have anything to draw me in. But I liked this. I like her when she's in her classical mode. with, And I think the Ataka Quartet really 
gets her and really performs her music well. Shaw does manage to sound individual in her writing. The simplicity of it gives a feeling of honesty and approachability like someone you want to be friends with. And there's much more in there than just an inviting exterior. The record comes across as an arty, indie classical album. There's a really open-hearted composer at the end of it with a fascination for the world around her. I'd much rather listen to this than write about it, but I found it enjoyable and even reassuring. So it's to be listened to, not to be spoken about more. I'd recommend it. Yeah, I liked it more than I thought I was going to, based on the previous ones. Uh, Mm. It's spacious and interesting arrangements. There's all manner of sounds and techniques to reproduce them. Uh, in the beginning, there are a few kind of like Celtic type sounds and influences I felt. Mm. Um, but as it goes along, you realize that these pieces are rather sectional, as you yeah. say. She's very sectional in her approach. Yeah. And very unpredictable in direction. Mm. But that also is tied to their kind of intriguing character. And especially considering the interesting inspirations that uh, she gets to make these pieces, everything from abstract ideas to qualities in the physical environment. And sometimes, you know, these kind of related ideas that cover different concepts. And that's kind of how the music sounds. Yeah. But it is interesting and not yeah. hard to listen to at all. So if you're up for something different, it's like uh, a bunch of journeys into you know, how someone relates thoughts and ideas from the world. And in that sense, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I, I had heard her previous um, album with the uh, Ataka Quartet was called Orange, and it really kind of you know, drew me to her. So I was really interested in hearing this one, despite the uh, the two from last year that yeah, I didn't really care for much either. Hmm. But uh, I like her in this in this mode a lot more. So yeah, I would I would recommend this. I think it's very good. There is, in fact, another album of her music that was recently released on the Alpha label that we may get to next year. We'll have to see. Mm. Um, I'll give it a listen first. We'll see what we're going to do about that. Well, I just looked at the weather and we're just about crossed below the freezing mark. Oh, boy. It, it never gets below zero Celsius here. Rarely. You know, it doesn't happen very often. Well, up in the mountain lair, we're a little bit yeah. uh, colder up here. So we yeah. get down maybe in Celsius, that is maybe last year we got down to minus nine or so. That's very cold. But that's usually not until January. So it's chilly. I just want to say something about Japan. I mean, I live in an older Japanese house and these houses are all made of wood. So in the winter, even though it's nowhere near as cold uh, here as it is in, say, northeastern USA or Canada. It's sometimes colder inside you, than it is outside. You, you always feel houses, cold yeah. here just because, <laughs> yeah, the, the houses don't hold the heat. There's no insulation in these houses and you got to keep the heater on. Well, you'll be cozy in the mountain lair when you come up next week for yeah, the end indeed. of year episode. And, well, to round out the final new music episode, I've got another national-themed one right. to go here. Now, you know, we've done a lot of jazz uh, based on uh, country of origin. We've had a couple of Italian episodes. We've done France. Hey. hey. We've done <laughs> what Poland. Are you talking about? We did Germany recently. Yeah. Uh, unbelievably, we did Poland. How about yeah. that? We found yeah. <laughs> uh, Greece. Three jazz recordings from Poland. And Greece, too. And yeah. that, was a, that, that was a real find. Those Greek, especially the Greek jazz musicians. They were fantastic. Tonight, why don't you have a Danish? Let's have a Danish. You might have a Danish yeah. in the morning usually, but uh, right. we're going to do Danish jazz. Now, we have done quite a bit of Danish jazz uh, just as part of other programs. Uh, we've featured uh, saxophonist 
Klaus Waitlow uh, last year. I've done a few recordings from Thomas Faunusback, the great Danish bassist who we really like, including one with Danish vocalist Sing Eek, who's a really oh, good she's jazzer. great. I still yeah. listen to that one. Yeah. yeah. And Very maybe adult. Our, our favorite, well, I guess he's really, he's Norwegian-born, but now he's Copenhagen-based uh, drummer Snorri Kirk. Oh, we love him. And uh, yeah, we really like mm-hmm. his playing. Now, some Scandinavian jazz has a reputation of kind of being cold and non-swinging. And I found that somewhat to be true, especially of some Norwegian jazz uh, that I've listened to. But what we've actually discovered is that there are a lot of hard swinging artists, Danish and Scandinavian in general, that have a real fresh twist on traditional jazz. Uh, probably Snorri Kirk is uh, the key one there. And of course, yeah. uh, one that we'll probably be talking about next week, the Swede uh, Tobias Wickland who sort of channels oh, like, him uh, a lot too. like the history of trumpet playing with a new twist on it. So I wanted to dive in a little bit more because I had some Danish artists on my listening list. And as it turns out, all of these recordings tonight are completely all original music. And now if you're not a jazz fan or musician, you might say, well, so what? Well, you know, jazz has a repertoire that consists of, you know, standards, mainly from the American songbook. And so, you know, with new artists, you'll usually get uh, maybe sometimes a whole album of standards. And then you'll get, uh, you know, covers of tunes that were written by other jazz musicians, like last week when we were uh, listening to the great Barry Sachs uh, record there. You know, we heard some Sonny Rollins, we heard some Joe Henderson, uh, you know, sort of tributes to former great players. But tonight we're going with all new material. So this, for me, presents a bit of a challenge to describe the music, because when you hear a piece for the first time, you sort of don't know what kind of form it's going to be in, how the compositions are constructed or anything. Uh, And so I usually like to listen to these recordings we talk about a few times, just sort of lightly. But (laughs) even when I got down to listen to them, you know, a couple of these recordings, I'm going to need a few more listens to really uh, dig Mm. into it. And I just did as, as well as I could with the time that I had. I think they're all really interesting and uh, worth checking out. And the first one is by the Danish uh, saxophonist Simon Spanghansen and his group, the Epistrophe Septet. And it's on Alicio Music. It's called South of Somewhere. This came out October 21st. Spang Hansen was born 1955. He's got a really long resume of uh, people he's performed with and recordings. This current group, Epistrophe Septet, also recorded an album in 2020 called The Plutonic Eclipse. It's a pretty cool name. And uh, hmm. then he's got another... That is a cool name. <laughs> yeah. Another Septet recording, but the members are different, so maybe that's why it doesn't have the same name. I'm not sure, but that's called Paris... 1996. That was recorded last year. And also last year, the Simon Spang Hansen Trio, he had a recording with uh, an album called Song for Sunny. Anyway, on this recording, uh, Septet uh, Spang Hansen, who I'm probably going to just shorten to Hansen as I go through it, uh, was on alto and soprano saxophones. He's also the composer and arranger for all these pieces. We've got Eric Kimestad on trumpet, Frederick Lundin, tenor sax, Peter Dahlgren, trombone, 
Arthur Tuznik, piano, Yasser Morejon Pino on bass, and Anders Mogensen on drums. The first track is Tones for Mulatu. It's got a lot of cool titles on this uh, recording. Yeah, there, uh, there are a lot of, yeah. yeah. This one starts with a drum pickup into a funky beat. Uh, it's got a unison trombone and bass line and a plunger muted solo uh, for the first 16 <laughs> bars. Uh, the horns wow. all come in, and then with eight bars of call and response style lines over the straight beat. And that's going to be a theme in his composing. There's a lot of call and response kind of uh, lines mm. in the horns. Uh, it continues on. It switches up to swing for a few bars on the way uh, with a more layered horn arrangement. Tenor sax and trombone get some improvised spots inside the rest of the horn arrangement. And then Hansen and Kimistad trade four-bar improvisations, trumpet and sax, and then join together, soloing simultaneously over the constantly shifting groove from swing and back uh, with more horn backing. Tuznik is up next with a ringing piano solo. Got some nice modern harmonies going on there. And there's a new arranged horn section featuring more of the soprano sax sound, more solo piano with horn lines. Uh, then funky bass and left-hand piano lines with horn interjections to some final horns come to a big minor chord finish. And so this piece, uh, this constant swing and straight beat shifts and uh, unpredictable solo ordering uh, keeps it sounding inventive all the way through. And you'll get a first taste of some nice horn arranging talent uh, by Hansen here as well. Track two is called Tolo. This one has kind of a Latin groove, starting out with an eight-bar bass and left-hand piano ostinato unison line. The main melody has an interesting horn arrangement with trading lines of trumpet and alto together and then tenor sax and trombone. Then things get more layered and work into a trombone solo with some tricky slide work from Dahlgren. Uh, Pino has a really good bass groove going on underneath and the horns add backing lines to build it up. Pino gets his own bass solo, then over the clicky drums of Mogensen uh, with nice rim hit accents. The horns are back again and uh, come into a fuller arrangement section uh, with more trading phrases to the end. I really like the horn arrangement at this point, uh, the different lines and full range of uh, the instruments uh, gives the impression of a larger ensemble as you're listening to this. You know, he layers the voices nicely. It sounds almost like a little big band at times. Track three, Kululu. Uh, Hansen starts it out with the solo soprano sax, exploring some modes for a little bit of an exotic impression. Uh, Mogensen gets a beat going on the drums. Pino adds a Latin sounding cool bass line and the horns come in with syncopated hits into smoother ideas, featuring Kimistat's trumpet, and then build up uh, more to a piano solo by Tuznik with a lot of high register action. Uh, Hansen gets some more soloing with a lot of bluesy and modally fast figures. And the horns back him to a climax and then get a sort of horn soli section working with the bass while piano and drums drop out for a bit. Uh, everyone is back in to build it up, but then piano and drums drop out once more until another build up to the end. Uh, the tune has interesting harmonies going from minor sections to more contrasting major chords. Track four is Zerla. It's a four bar drum intro. Uh, gives us the 6-8 beat feel of this tune. The melody has legato triad figures, almost like an etude in the trumpet and a sax that are trading with trombone and bass figures. Lunden comes out of that with a smooth start to a tenor sax solo. Uh, the horns have soft backing lines to push him on to more intensity. 
and the horns build it to a climax with more arrangement, and then trombone and bass lines take it down to the end. It's a short one at just under three minutes. Track five, Hip Step. Trumpet and alto sax started out with rhythmic counterlines. Mogensen gives it a swing feel with ride, cymbal, and bass and trombone have a bouncy line together. Uh, an arranged horn section with trading lines comes along with a cool change-up of beat for a few bars uh, into a trumpet solo by Kimstadt uh, over Mogensen's drums. Uh, so he's got a lot of harmonic and rhythmic freedom here. The horns add interjections, building it up to some two-bar exchanges of horn phrases with drums into another round of the main horn arrangement, some final topsy-turvy phrases. Track six is Moonflower. It's a softer tune, has kind of an eight-beat feel to it. The melody has exchanges of phrases between trombone and trumpet, and Hansen comes out with a soprano sax melody line uh, that has stops with drum hits along the way and horn backing. The groove changes up as the horn arrangement builds up with trombone and sax exchanges. There's some funky horn and drum phrase build up into a piano solo from Tuznik with lots of running lines and chiming high notes. Linden's next on tenor sax with smooth lines and then Hansen on soprano sax uh, working more in the lower register this time. Uh, the horns come in with a full arrangement of the melody into a softer section just over bass and then a final build up to the end with the funky phrases from before and the drums kicking it up to the end. Track seven's called Daybreak. It's got a solo piano intro from Tuznik. It's rubato, but has snappy little rhythmic figures in the lines uh, before setting a ballad tempo for the tune. The first has delicate exchanges of figures between trumpet and tenor sax over Mogensen's drum brushwork. Dahlgren takes the next strain with a high and longing trombone line floating over the bass and brushes below. Uh, Hansen takes the lead next on alto sax as the other horns weave behind him. Dahlgren gets a solo next as Mogensen doubles up the beat on the snare. It's a great soaring trombone solo, working up high and showing a lot of agility. Hansen follows next on alto, and I really like his sound here. Uh, you know, we heard him on soprano before, but his alto sound is big, uh, somewhat breathy, soft attack, really fast darting lines, uh, a, a nice sounding alto tone. Uh, there are lush horn line backings that support both solos. Uh, next there are some unison, loping melodic left hand piano and bass lines that extend along to a return of Dahlgren's longing trombone melody. Hansen gets another alto strain with trumpet and tenor support underneath with pretty moving lines and the trombone joins on and adds some fun for the final phrase. It's a very pretty tune with nice arranging and that great alto tone from Hansen. Track 8, Basie Street. The drums kick into a medium swing here for an 8-bar horn section intro. Dahlgren slides out with a solo strain of the melody and then passes it to Lunden's tenor, both over some nice hi-hat work. Uh, that presses into a more swinging horn line with walking bass and great low trombone blasts, and the horns are off on a swinging arrangement. You know, it's bassy. She's got got to sound uh, mm. swingy, right? Dahlgren is up mm. first for a trombone solo. It's another fun one. Great technique, good high register, and some bluesy bent notes. And every time he plays, I've noticed his happiness comes through uh, on yeah. his solos, uh, even when he's playing those longing kind of. Uh, trombone tone things it just sounds like a, a happy guy uh, yeah i actually mentioned that in my uh concluding oh, notes it? section it's uh. really funny i picked that up too uh. 
Uh, Pino gets a bass solo next. He keeps it rhythmic and snappy with some fun triplets and bass harmonies on the way. And London follows on tenor sax, starting with some bassy-like bluesy riffs and a phrase that sounds like Santa Claus is coming to town. You tell I me. I picked that up too. Yeah, yeah. Up, yeah. <laughs> good, good timing. Uh, before ripping into some more uh, double-time lines and bluesy cries. The horns are backing and uh, work into another arranged section with trumpet taking the lead and then exchanging with the tenor. Tuznik gets a little ode to Basie with a tinkling strain before the horns and Dahlgren's sassy trombone build it to the end. Yeah, good fun swinging tune. Yeah. Track nine, South of Somewhere. Uh, it starts out with the horns trading a few unified riffs with solo drums at a fast swing tempo. The horn arrangement builds up with call and response type lines, trumpet alto, answered by trombone and tenor. Uh, lines come together and the horn arrangement builds up. They get some more call and response with bass and left-hand piano and then a climaxing strain. Tuznik gets a piano solo after that. It's energized with some zippy lines and percussive upper register ideas. Kimistat follows with an agile, hard boppy trumpet solo and then it's Hansen on alto. He plays a unique solo here. It's busy and fluttery, full of energy. Interesting approach uh, to the style of this one. The horns have been building up backing lines and then return to the opening riff and drum exchange idea. And then Mogensen gets busy with some heavy ideas on drums and continues on for a bit of solo. Uh, the horns continue with the call and response ideas we heard previously, but the ending is different with the rhythm section dropping out for a bit uh, for the horns to build up the final phrase. Track 10, Mood Morganfield. It opens with an eight-bar ostinato bass pattern and a loping low minor bluesy riff in the tenor sax and trombone. Hansen comes in with the melody on alto sax, and there are answering rising bass and piano low phrases. Uh, the progression is like a 12-bar blues with some interesting chords that give it more of a modally feel. Uh, they go around once more, with Kimstadt's trumpet taking the lead, and the other horns adding answering phrases. Then the horns work together on an 8-bar bridge section. Uh, Hansen takes a solo chorus on alto sax, and then London on tenor, and then they trade four-bar phrases over a couple of choruses. And Tuznik falls with piano solo for three choruses with the horns coming in on the final time. Then we get a chorus of bass and trombone unison lines leading to a, a repeat of the opening eight-bar intro idea, this time with some plunger muted a solo trumpet on top. Then the melody sections led by sax and then trumpet. They carry on through the bridge and the horns have a few measures of stacking lines arranged to end it. And that's it. Uh, fun tunes, I thought, with different rhythmic feels, kind of energetic solos all around. Henson's soprano and interesting versatile tones on the alto sax. Uh, Dahlgren's longing trombone tone we mentioned uh, stands out and is excellent technique. It impressed me a lot. Uh, most of all, it's the cool arrangements, though, for a septet that have a lot of call and response ideas and make a fun, full sound on this recording. Yeah, not only that, it's an, it's an excellently recorded album, too. Mm. All the instruments are clear. The present, well balanced. It, it sounds like it was recorded with a rock record aesthetic, maybe the on different tracks because hmm. everything just sounds so clear. Each member of the septet lineup keeps busy, often playing individual lines, so the texture gets crowded and even chaotic, but in a lively, exciting way. Hmm. You know, the grooves are more in a funk vein, and each track starts in a different, unexpected way, which kept my ear yeah. anticipating each track. Yeah, it was a good listen. I'm wondering why there wasn't any more extended soloing though, because the, the tracks were kind of short. Hmm. I could have, I would have liked that. 
Yeah, and the responsibilities. It just sounds like the, like a happy group of people. Like, yeah. like you had mentioned, I had mentioned that too. I really enjoyed listening to this a lot. It was, this is one yeah, I fun. would think Energetic. of picking up. Yeah, and um, yeah, you mm-hmm. know, rather than just uh, going off on uh, solos in order or just switching them up, the the arrangements right. are really interesting. So this group is a cool outlet for his arranging skills, and they did a good job. Uh, the, the different lines had me uh, intrigued in all the tunes. Me too, yeah. yeah. I want to hear this again. Now we're going to shift gears and get to a really intriguing, mellow uh, recording. Yeah. Overall, uh, very atmospheric. And this is by tenor saxophonist uh, Jan Harbeck and his quartet. It's on Stunt Records, and it's called Balanced. Now, we've heard Harbeck with Snorri Kirk uh, before, uh, and he's played on several recordings with him. And so I thought, well, let me check out uh, this group. And apparently he's had this quartet, uh, the same member since 2007. And it says they're still developing and pushing the music forward as evidenced by this album, Balanced Here. Harbeck says, this is his quote, uh, we have a special sound together. And when we play a song that no one has heard anywhere else, it has a unique chance to develop. It's not supposed to sound quite like anything else. And you should be able to hear that it's us playing. Interestingly, this recording was uh, all recorded in the same room in a church that Harbeck chose for its natural sound and intimacy. And intimacy is a good word for this recording. Right. And he also prefers to play acoustically at their live concerts because he says it sounds better and more magical when the overtones of the instruments blend naturally in the room. I would agree. Yeah. I would say that's if true. You can, if you can do that, yeah. yeah. And here it all comes out really atmospherically. So we've got Harbeck on tenor sax and also all original compositions here. Henrik Gunde, piano. Now, here's, <laughs> this is one of those names when I look at it, it scares me uh, to pronounce in English, but <laughs> I think I got it. Eske Nurluke. It's the k- t- double Ks, I think, come out as a G. Nurluke. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to go with that. Nur Luge on uh, bass. And Anders Holm on drums. And we've got the addition of Elil Lazo on some nice tasty congas that add to the atmosphere here. Again, all original tunes. And so I tried to get my head wrapped around the form of what's going on here while I listened yeah. to... Uh, I guess uh, the, the key word on this is breath. Because uh, it's a breathy yeah, album, yeah, yeah, breathy, and he's concentrating on this playing. concept. Although he's a very versatile uh, player, he's capable of getting lots of different sounds. I've heard before. This one has got a real uh, kind of concept to it, and the title track comes number one, balanced. Uh, it's got a four-bar intro that sets the mood. The loping bass figure, soft drum brushes, and subtle single conga hits. Uh, minor chords on the piano, adding in two. Harbeck comes in on with the melody. It's breathy in the lower register. Comes out of his horn like rising plumes of seductive smoke, uh, as much of this album will. (laughs) That's pretty interesting. Yeah, Nice dynamic contrast in his lines, too, with a little bit more push on the higher notes. The song form is 32 bars, A-A-B-A. He continues on from the melody into a solo, contrasting soft phrases with some more intense cries and breathy escapes of sounds. Uh, the room sound does add to the ambiance here. Gundier is up to start a piano solo then with some interesting rhythmic ideas in the lower register. 
continues on with rhythmic teases, making good use of space and soft chord ideas. Uh, then some interesting wavy rippling lines as well. Now Harbeck joins the piano and bass line, uh, making a vamp, then for some tasty restrained percussion from Holm and Lazo on drums and congas. Harbeck returns for another run through the melody, taking it even more reticently <laughs> to leave, have the notes leave the horn, and they leave out the final A section on sax, instead uh, vamping out on the bass figure with the piano joining in until it fades out. Track two, One Fine Day. A hesitated, breathy first note into this very pretty and slow ballad. It has a jazz standard quality to it, like you've heard it before. Mm-hmm. And it's very satisfying, uh, sort of harmonic development chord movement. Uh, another 32 bar AABA construction. Harbeck again plays softly, breathy, incredibly relaxed phrasing. Uh, he continues into a solo too, getting some more higher register phrases and cascades of faster notes. Returns to the melody on the final A section with a fluttering and then fluffy low-toned sax cadenza space before they end it. This is really lovely. <laughs> Just beautiful mm, playing. Yeah. yeah. Track three, Silver String Valley. A slow four-bar intro with bowed bass and ringing drum toms create a mysterious atmosphere. The melody is made up of similar repeated minor phrases that Harbeck adds subtle variations to. After a repeat of the first section, it modulates and has an extended form of 38 bars uh, over the length with a switch to contrasting major strains from the 29th bar. Uh, so a little unusual construction, but these nice uh, twists in harmony. Harbick builds his solo slowly over the sections. His phrases are like rising and falling waves. Uh, Laza's subtle conga hits added to Holmes' brush textures underneath it. And Gunde has a really haunting piano solo here with ringing notes that sort of hang in their own rhythmic space. Uh, they're just uh, you mm. know, they're not locked into what's going on below, but somehow create their own kind of uh, you know space to hang in. And he finally works into, again, some more ripples of sound. And they play through the melody once more to a soft and subtle ending. Track four is called The Enchanter. It's a little more up-tempo here, the medium walking bass line and a bounce in the piano chords that go into the four-bar intro. Harbeck takes the melody line with a little more sassiness here. It's a 20-measure melody that has some nice twists with unexpected chords. He continues with a couple choruses of solo, getting a bit playful. And Gundy is also playful with rhythmic chord ideas in his piano solo, a few bluesy ideas, and some fun dissonant chord backing, just slightly to uh, build up the tension. To take it through the melody again, with a few repeats of the final phrase to finish it off. Track five is Tranquility. Starts with solo ringing drum toms. Neurologic adds a hypnotic dirge of an ostinato bass line. Soft cymbal rolls and sparse piano set the stage for Harbeck to come in with the breathy minor melody. It has little harmonic twists with brighter major spots, creates a real sense of longing over the 32-bar form. Grunde is up first for a solo here, and he creates some intriguing melodic ideas out of intervals, uh, repeated notes, and some stretched triplet ideas. Harbeck comes back with a sultry solo, some more animated faster lines before turning more breathy, getting a cadenza as the others drop out before they return for the final strain. Track six, Woodwind. 
It's a ringing piano and bass to start this one with a four-bar intro. Harback blows the melody and his solo uh, so breathily that you feel it could stop coming out at any moment in this song. <laughs> right. The chords are yeah, rich. You might lose the tone yeah. or something. Yeah. Uh, there's some nice harmonic lifts and major and sunny feelings that emerge from the minor strains from around the 13th bar of the melody. Grinde has another great subtle-touched piano solo after Harbeck's solo, and he also gets to close the tune with some ringing notes and chords after a repeat of the melody from Harbeck. Track 7 is One Step at a Time. It's bluesy, slow, and sultry in the warm and breathy lower register as Harbeck comes right in on the melody here. It's minor, uh, but a nice switch in the 7th bar of the A section, and a contrasting uplifting B section of the melody. Grundy has subtle ringing backing right-hand phrases, and Harbeck continues on for a solo, including some silky faster lines. Grundy has another restrained solo, a great sense of articulation and touch, and the drums and congas have a great layered or laid-back groove, rather, with synced hits and clicks that echo in the church space nicely. And Harbeck takes another run through the melody to close it out. Track eight is called The Drive. Uh, this one's more up-tempo with an old-time kind of sounding melody. Uh, there are a lot of nice harmonic twists to the chords, implying a bluesy phrase ending uh, that Harbeck obliges towards the end of the strain. Uh, it seems to be a 16-bar form that they repeat, and then there's like an 8-bar modulated bridge section before a repeat of the main strain. Uh, Harbeck starts his solo uh, very softly here, but he has springy, swinging snap in his phrases. Grunde provides a nice rollicking feel on the bridge section and has some fun bouncy ideas with repeated notes worked into his solo before getting bluesy with some punctuated lower notes and some faster runs in there too. Norlugi gets a little bit of some bouncy bass ideas in as well before Harbeck returns with the final section of the melody, repeating that last bluesy phrase to build it up to some final breathy and slightly honky statements from the sax. We're going to end up hmm. with track nine to be continued. A very slow drum and conga four-bar intro to Harbeck's breathiest entrance yet. <laughs> Actually, each phrase of the melody emerges just from air almost. Uh, the <laughs> melody and harmonies are lush and lovely. The phrase lengths and starting points are a little unusual uh, in this tune. Uh, it seems to be 34 bars in total length to the melody, but I kept getting lost in the wispy and dreamy phrases that Harbeck blows on this tune. Grunde has a subtle touched solo too, but Harbeck joins in midway with the restatement of the melody to the end, and they repeat the final alternating chords for a lush ending with some warm, breathy sax trills. So it's mostly slow and always subtle recording, Wonderfully restrained playing here. Harbeck's breathy tone is dreamy, and all the tunes take you to pretty little spaces uh, in a dreamy world. Uh, there's a lot of minor melodies, but they have interesting harmonic twists and little bright spots. Uh, Grunde shows a matching subtle touch on piano with fine solos, and the percussion is just right for the mood, and the space of the church in uh, recording gives it a naturally wonderful sound. Put this on and slip away to a dreamy place. Yeah, a really hypnotic album. It really took took me over right away. And another word I use that we just don't use on this podcast almost ever is it's a very sexy album. Just all mm. that breathiness kind of, yeah. you know, just kind of yeah. comes across as really sexy and even sensual. And even haunting because it's got these kind of like these 50s kind of slow 
rock dance rhythms. I think uh, yeah. there's one track I had mentioned. Um, you've heard Elvis Presley sing like Blue Moon and has that like kind of horse clopping oh, kind of right, right. rhythm to it. There, there was one of those on here too. And a lot of the um, the sound of the rhythm kind of um, on some of these tracks really reminded me of that sort of sound, something that you'd hear in the 1950s, like right. the old, uh, what they used to call the American sad lonesome sound of wide open spaces <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. So he gets, he gets, there's a bit of that on here too. Yeah, I love the uh, the breathy um, sax tone that he got, and he also has catchy themes too. These, um, yeah, his his melodies are, you know, they stay in the mind. They're they're really catchy mm -hmm. as well. So there's that too. This was a real find for me. I'm really interested in this. A good late night listen. I kind of wish I had a CD. I'd just put it on tonight yeah. you know, while I'm staying up late. You know. I think you said this one. You yeah, can get great. the CD from uh, Bandcamp, but uh, Harbeck is, yeah. uh, you know, he's uh, got a lot of recordings that are available uh through amazon and other places so hopefully this one we can get it through a local distributor soon here so we don't have to pay exorbitant yeah. shipping rates from uh, europe <laughs> no. or something yeah I, I could be a rich man if i could only have all the shipping rates <laughs> from all the cds i've bought over the years like yeah. refunded to me that would just be the best thing i want jeff bezos to pay to get it at least to japan i don't mind paying <laughs> from <laughs> from uh, the port <laughs> to my house but uh yeah. Yeah. all right one more Danish group here and uh, well what could you listen to after all of that uh, atmospheric sexy yeah. sax playing but some vibes to close it out oh, and, yeah. uh, so we've got an interesting vibes recording here by the Martin Fabricius Trio this one's on Zach's music label it's uh, called New World and it just came out December 2nd and so it's a vibes trio it's the fourth album from Fabricius a former student of the legendary Gary Burton. Mm. So, and uh, wow. fourth album with this trio. This album deals with finding time, feeling connected, imaginative journeys, the pandemic, and trying to eat less beef, maybe, in parentheses, <laughs> and themes of loss and love. Well, not if he's going to Russ's house for Christmas. Not if he's coming to my house for Christmas, because not only are we going to have a, a beef festival, I've got some uh, venison sausage for us, too. So we'll go. Yeah, we on. might not make it to New Year's. We'll have, to yeah. see yeah. we'll have gamey and uh, beef all, all, right. all in one. Anyway, gamey is good, though. It's good for you. Yeah. yeah. It's a different kind of protein. Anyway, here we've got uh, hmm. Martin Fabricius vibraphone with electronics. A few electronics in here. I'll get to mentioning them. Also, again, all original compositions. We've got Andreas Marcus on double bass and Jacob Hethold on drums. Just a trio. There you go. We're going to start with In Your Own Time for track one. A cymbal roll brings it in, and you hear a simple repetitive riff on the left in the lower vibe range that will be a grounding for the tune along with uh, the long accented bass notes now if you pay attention you'll notice that the in your own time is referring to this time signature here not one that we hear a lot 10-4 time signature 10-4 wow. buddy yeah uh, marked out yeah. by that riff and the bass uh, after the four bar intro Fabricius adds an uplifting melody of ringing harmonized notes that seems to be a 16-bar phrase, but it takes such a long time to get there in this uh, in this meter <laughs> that I lost count. And then he drops the riff, and he starts his solo in the lower register, 
great sound on the recording here. Uh, what I really like is uh, yeah. it really captures the clean attacks on the vibes. It's almost like they're right in the room with you. Yeah. He manages to weave smooth melodies over this odd meter very nicely, adding uh, harmonies in his lines. Listen to the nice snare work and other drum fills by Hethold underneath too, who, as this album went on, my ear was drawn by this drummer's wonderful textures a lot. And then the mm. riff and the melody return for another round. Uh, it's a bright kind of uplifting sound that manages to sound normal despite the odd time signature. I just want to say the uh, the vibes get this really long sustain. And I was thinking that they must have been really turned up loud in order to, for the, mm. the note to last that long without decaying. I was kind of yeah. wondering about that. Yeah, they do really hang in the air for a long time. Two, a much-needed moment. Uh, this one starts with an eight-bar bass intro of a chord cycle of bass intervals. Fabricius adds a slow ringing melody line for 16 bars above it that becomes more rhythmic uh, when he begins improvising and gets help from Haythold's tight drum accents. Marcus moves away from the ostinato idea to a really throbbing accented bass lines to push the vibes along into more animated improvisations. And he gets a bass solo next. He plays quite melodically, reaching up into the upper register and creating anticipation with rhythms. His bass sounds absolutely huge in all registers. They return to the opening bass interval idea and delicate melody, closing it with some soft trills on the vibes and fast repeated bass notes. And the notes for this track on the Bandcamp say, this track also demonstrates a new technical development in the trio, a more pronounced use of electronics on the vibraphone. Uh, he says, I set up a loop, use a backward delay and an octave pedal. The octave pedal adds a deep bass sound to the vibraphone. And mm. I didn't notice this at all, really. Yeah. I notice he's... Maybe that's where the sustain's coming from. I, mean, I don't know. But he's going to have yeah. a, uh, a live performance or studio performance video of this coming up. It says, like, coming soon on YouTube. So I'm going to check it out when it comes yeah. out and see if I can see yeah. what's kind of going on there. It'll be on uh, Facebook, too, I'm sure. So yeah. we'll see. Yeah. Put that up there. Track three, two of a kind. And this, uh, the note says, a tune he wrote with his three-year-old son, who was kind of uh, jamming along on harmonica one day when he was working on something at the piano, hence the two of a kind. A uh, rhythmic opening of soft vibe chords and a subdivided drum beat uh, bring in the melody that bass and vibes uh, start together. Uh, but Marcus brings out most of the phrases on bass at first. Fabricius keeps a rhythmic accompaniment with a ringing pedal tone mixed in with what he's doing. He takes the next melody section on vibes in the lower register and has nice little answering phrases up higher uh, to himself. It gets more animated for a solo with nice building, rising phrases over the subdivided drum beats, and they bring it down softly for another run through the melody on vibes, building it up to more uh, bubbling improvisations and a final soft melody strain to end it. Track four, I guess this is the uh, the cow to uh, beef no more. <laughs> <laughs> Say upbeat, uh, it says uh, bluegrass inspired song in 7 4. And uh, he said, quote, the song title Beef No More could have been written by Kurt Vonnegut <laughs> and was originally followed by a question mark and an exclamation point. It reflects the bewilderment and honestly the resistance I felt when I realized I had to change my ways in order to leave an inheritable planet for my children and grandchildren. 
I'm still looking forward to those steaks next week, but <laughs> anyway, the bass and vibes this, this track together. isn't putting me off that. Yeah. <laughs> On the four measure intro, the seven four meter gives it an unusual feel. Fabricius works out the melody over Marx's snappy, syncopated bass, and I'm wondering what the bluegrass thing is all about, and then I get it when Hethelt starts the busy double-time drum feel underneath, which is kind of funny because bluegrass music doesn't have drums. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this is evocative of like fast banjo picking, that kind of uh, right. complex rhythm yeah. that comes out when you have like really fast fingering there. Marcus switches to kind of even alternating bass to match underneath that busy drumming. And Fabricius really lets the 16th notes fly from the mallets uh, during those fast sections. They go through the intro and melody pattern again with Hethelt mixing it up on the drums underneath the intro section this time. Fabricius really rings out the melody and this time keeps things slower over the doubled up bluegrass evoking section, but the 16th notes return on the next run through and then they vamp out on the opening section ideas with Hethel drumming up a storm underneath to a big ending. And he shows some really great drum work uh, throughout this whole track with this interesting time signature too. Track five is called A Very Good Man. This is dedicated to his late father. It's a slow, longing rubato minor melody intro over bowed bass uh, for eight bars. Uh, it gets a slow, steady tempo from subtle drum brushes and Marcus's switch to bass pulses. Fabricius really lets the pretty tone ring out and hang in the air over the lovely melody, and Marcus has great moving bass lines underneath. It sort of takes a short breath just about at two minutes, and then he takes the melody into an upper register for a bit before coming back down. It's a really beautiful melody that has some really nice chord changes as well. The whole thing ends up on a happy major chord, and I'm sure his father would be proud to have heard this tune. It's just a very beautiful melody. Now, uh, this one was a real peak of uh, fun tunes on this for me. Uh, first Train Out. Uh, so get your hoedown going for some country fiddle. Well, bass fiddle, mm -hmm. that is. Marcus has some fun with rhythmic bowing, uh, setting things up with a real kind of country uh, hoedown eight-measure intro. Tight snare work from Hethalt 2. Fabricius rings out the melody. Somehow, it does bring the image of a train whistle feel to mind uh, with the phrasing. And the structure is really cool, creating anticipation too. Now, if you listen to this, when the vibes play the melody of the A section of the melody, the actual phrases are eight bars, but there are two extra bars you have to wait through before you hear the repeat or the next section. So it's sort of like the train is getting up to speed or something. Mm. Now, remember that because um, the B section gets animated and works into Fabricius getting a bluesy uh, lower piano-like riff going under his higher mallets. Uh, he solos with happy and energetic sounding lines over the really cool rhythmic bowings of Marcus. Now, when they come back and repeat the melody the second time, they leave out those extra bars in the A sections. So they're just eight mm. bars. You know, we heard the extra ones at the beginning. So now it's like the train is moving full speed ahead and, uh, you know, it's going down the yeah. track. Now, when you think it's ended, it's not. There's a final solo little vibes diddle phrase that's fun. has a really fun uh, little extra cadence in there and a rising bowed bass line. This is a great, fun little tune. Yeah, it's also got that uh, clackety-clack uh, train rhythm on the yeah. drums too. Yep. That's giving you that too. They've used, they used this earlier too. And we've got um, 
New World, track seven, and uh, these are from the notes on Bandcamp. When Dvorak named his ninth symphony New World Symphony, he was crediting USA and its original music art forms as his inspiration, but he also leaned on his own cultural heritage being from Hungary. That was my Mm. intention too, says Fabricius, with the song New World, to come up with a new take on American blues while incorporating a strong Scandinavian tone. And he spent uh, three years studying at uh, Berklee College of Music in Boston, so probably soaked up a lot of uh, American cultural things as well as the music. Uh, This one starts with an eight-bar intro, of a minor and slightly bluesy bass line in a 6-8 meter. Fabricius handles the chords, and Hatelt marks out the subdivided swing feel on light cymbals. The melody on the vibes is minor, has a sparse quality to it, with some interesting harmonic twists. Marcus is up for a, a solo first, and he keeps it rhythmic uh, on the bass, but he has some licks that seem to really have a, a crying kind of feel to them. The vibe solo has some bluesy phrases, but also gets inventive around the interesting chords that he's placed in the melody here. And Hatelt is really mixing it up underneath with tight drumming to push it. They take it through the melody again, and the drums really work it up in spots to a big ringing final chord finish. Track eight, Our Land. This one referring to Denmark then, and the notes say, if you drive through the countryside of Denmark, you will see some of the 86,000 burial mounds dating back to the peasant uh, stone age, rising as small crowns on the green hills. He says, writing our land, I was thinking about the land we live on and my connection to it, cultivated, developed, and fought over for thousands of years. And so they premiered this piece at a concert on the day that Russia invaded Ukraine. And he says it was a very strong experience that's now forever connected to this song. Uh, This one has uh, ringing vibe notes and eerie bowed bass that create a mysterious atmosphere on the rubato beginning. The minor melody has a stately kind of processional quality to it, as played by Fabricius, uh, starting out over the now ringing bass notes of Marcus. They give it a little breathing pause before Fabricius' improvised solo. He keeps the ancient mystery feeling going in his playing, tying it back to ringing chords for Hetel to get a little busier on the drums under, and the final melody stray is over deep bowed bass, a very atmospheric tune. Track 9, Mana, which has got a couple meanings here. Mana is uh, traveling back in time to the mysterious biblical scene where the Israelites are offered mana from the sky, and Anna is his three-year-old daughter. So it's got a couple of Hmm. meanings wrapped up in the title. Uh, This one's got a rubato intro with some interesting electronic effects on the vibes that are readily audible on this one. His lines are moving with a nice uh, sync with Marcus's bass, and Hatelt goes from light textures to outlining a slow three-beat rhythm. But the song seems to flow out rather than to be set in a kind of groove with the meter. Uh, You can hear the interesting effects in his uh, vibes solo, although they are subtle. Uh, They go through the melody again, and there's a really good interplay and communication with the trio here all the way through uh, to be able to hang this loose uh, rhythmically, but yet be so comfortable and synced up together. Track 10 is Moving On. It's got interesting syncopated bass and vibes phrases. Get some ringing high vibe answer kind of phrases to that. 
Uh, it picks up more of a groove about a minute in with some bluesy and rhythmic phrases from Fabricius into a really melodic improvised solo. They repeat the syncopated and then bluesy sections and then get into some rhythmic vamping for Hetel to mix it up on the drums to the end. And we're going to finish up with track 11, Old Words. This one's a slow and gently moving melody with the vibes and bass in a close dance together. It sort of unwinds and then it gets a fresh start on the melody right around two minutes. Uh, Fabricius has some restrained and pretty ringing phrases and Marcus has a lovely kind of reaching bass solo that shows off his huge gorgeous tone. Haytelt has been adding delicate textures all the way through and we get a final delicate melody strain with some extra final pretty chords to end it. So I thought it was a uh, unique and atmospheric vibes recording. There's great interplay in this trio. The tunes are interesting and varied. Some more atmospheric and flowing and others really energized like the first train out. I have to listen to them a little bit more to get some of the ideas of the of where the melodies sort of stop and the soloing begins because it's kind of you know free form like that but uh, it's really enjoyable Fabricius has really great technique but he's not a show-off he never sacrifices making a great ringing tone or sort of lush harmonies uh, just to show off his technique and the vibes just sound great on this recording Marcus's bass tone is unique and ringing and huge and as I mentioned, I really enjoyed uh, Haytolt's inventive drumming textures and rhythms. And this one invites repeated listenings. Yeah, I was really struck by the uh, gorgeous sound on the vibes in this one, too. And I, as I mentioned earlier, the very long sustain, you know, mm. it's a very atmospheric album. And I was thinking, oh, you know, like French, it's about the timbre, the sound that the, yeah. the instrument makes. He's really pays a lot of attention to that and that's really what my ear was on hmm. I, I did catch the 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 uh the train rhythms and first train out and there was an earlier track where it had that too the beef no more yeah also had a train track rhythm on it you know with the, hmm. the clacking of the wheels between the uh the connections yeah. and the tracks uh, yeah it was it was it was nice it's very atmospheric kind of a another late night album sort of like um the jan harbeck one but yeah. um but different it's it's very yeah, different, different than that yeah, so there you go. We did a lot of um, tours this year all around uh, specifically European countries uh, for some jazz uh, focused on uh, country of origin. And Denmark has been a good uh, journey as well to finish yeah, things up. how about that? Yeah. We're going to have to uh, return there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think there'll be some more uh, good recordings coming out next year too. I uh, hope we get a new one from Snorri Kirk too. Still waiting. Uh, yeah. yeah. That'd be good. Yeah, and there you have it. Some final recordings to check out this week before we give you the whole year in review. Right. We're going to be getting together on Christmas Day for the adult music family uh, get together. <laughs> Lots of beef and booze. <laughs> yeah, a lot of beef and, and booze at that. venison yeah. and vino as well. It's going to be a yeah. good day. I think so too. It'll be yeah. maybe not the happiest Christmas ever, but maybe the... Uh, the, the, the drunkenest Christmas ever. I think so. I think we're going to... That, that is possible. We're going to run uh, kind of loose and ragged on that one. There'll probably be, uh, you know, bottles opening in the background, and uh, yeah. we're going to be shooting from the hip as we uh, reveal each other's uh, Christmas lists of yeah. the best recordings and see uh, if what we have that are the same and different. Then I'll try to organize all of that into a, uh, a list that you'll have to scroll through, but uh, not too far to get all the links to 
uh, check out anything you haven't heard yet. So that'll uh, be uh, launched on December 26th morning, I guess. So it'll still be Christmas evening in uh, the U.S. So if you need to get away from the relatives and uh, want some quiet time, go get those headphones and retreat to a bedroom after you've opened all your presents and realize you didn't get what you wanted. And you can add some of those CDs to your Christmas You'll have a playlist that's like, got to be more than 12 hours long <laughs> sure it'll take you right through to new year's yeah, yeah for sure yeah so anyway looking forward to that just one more week and uh, we'll make those uh, final sorts it was hard to whittle those lists down i'll sing the blues about that next week <laughs> yeah it was a good gotta, year for music i thought i heard a lot of yeah. music i really enjoyed still got to cut my classical one down uh, yeah, especially go in jazz i i was oh man it was it was really hard i was like yeah hurting to take some of these out but hopefully you're going to mention them also we'll see anyway stay tuned for that christmas present to you all and uh, before we go thanks as always to fast signs of staten island for our glowing neon logo and be sure to check out those other podcasts the links will be in the end of the description and uh, when we sign off here we'll have the little promo trailers there that's tom gauker's something came from baltimore joe domino's famous interviews in neon jazz and johnny valenswell and tony Abras. same difference two jazz fans one jazz standard anything else to uh say before we sign up mike no i think i'm i'm all talked out Huh. <laughs> I'm ready, well, to, well, that's ready to hang up this the microphone for this week. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already anticipating the best of lists. I'm still, yeah. th- I'm still thinking about this. Oh, it's right. agonizing. All right, this has been episode 94 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind, and we'll be back for one more. We didn't miss a week this year, as yeah, that promised. was our New Year's resolution. So yeah, there you go. Stuck to it. There you go. Did so it. Yeah. see you for the final of 2022 episode 95, best of. Adult Music 2022 next week. Gerald Albright, Maria Schneider, Charlie Hunter, Duke Robillard, Sean Jones, Walter Beasley, Steve Swallow. Something Came From Baltimore is a jazz, blues, and R&B podcast and radio show, and it's not really about Baltimore. Subscribe to the podcast and listen to your favorite artist or future favorite artist that Something Came From Baltimore and be a part of that Be More music scene. Joe Lovano, Jeff Coffin, Paula Cole, Denuso Makatani, Ann Passio, Chess Smith, Thumbscrew, mostly. Hi, jazz fans. This is the founder and host of Neon Jazz, Joe Domino. It's both a weekly radio show and interviews with musicians from all over the world, like the Netherlands, New York City, and back to Kansas City, the home of Neon Jazz, covering the rich history and modern world of jazz in a fresh way, featuring interviews with the likes of Arturo Sandoval, Sonny Rollins, Maria Schneider, and countless others. Find our weekly show on Mixcloud. Subscribe to the interviews via iTunes and YouTube. We are Neon Jazz. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.